This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Happy Thursday to you. Hope you're having a great uh, day so far as we get started here. Dr. Matt, along with, of course, Terry South, Jeffrey Liam Simpson. The gang's all here. And uh, boy, do the topics start to begin. Deal or no deal, depends who you talk to. Uh, Is President Trump actually trying a little bipartisanship? The Democrats say yes. Trump actually now is saying no. We don't have a DACA deal. Wrong. We're dealless. So we'll be talking about uh, that coming up. Also, um, why the market competition has brought down health care costs. Is it possible that uh, the whole free market economy idea works really well in certain places and not so hot in the health care market? So far, yeah, sure. Yeah, because you, we've got a lot of options. I mean, more than we used to. Shop around for an MRI. Yeah. You go to three different hospitals, you get wildly different prices. We've and it's all the it. same machine. We've talked about it on the show. I had a friend that had uh, LASIK surgery, one hospital, $5,000. The same doctor, the exact same procedure to do the other eye was at another hospital, $2,500. Is this the friend that went to the barber and got his eyes shaved? Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 Poor guy. Can't see anymore. No, check that out. You had $5,000 payment one place, $2,500 payment another place. Right. So what's the difference? One Same place doctor. wants more money. They just charge whatever they want. They And we're going to find out. One of the biggest problems is admin costs. It costs four times more to have a market economy admin. Because hmm. you have to have seven hospitals with 55 ways to bill, and everybody has to be billed differently. So everything costs 10 times more to actually process the billing. Well, paper and ink cost a lot of money. Plus, that's where they can mark it up. That's where all the markup is. Hmm? And a lot of these hospital groups are for-profit. Yeah. So they show up to a board meeting, and they need to show growth. Yeah. 30, 40 years ago, you you, you pretty much had kind of a single-payer system, because I guess Blue Cross Blue Shield was the big insurance company of the country. Hmm. Now? There's dozens, dozens of big insurance companies, and some are for-profit, some are not-for-profit. Anyway, so does that mean a single-payer system? According to Bernie Sanders, that is the end-all, be-all. Works in Canada. Does it? I don't know. I think we have a romanticized uh, view of what Canada's healthcare yeah. system is. But we also have a romanticized view of what a market economy-driven right. healthcare system would be. So maybe what we need to figure out is what really works. Boy, but who do you trust? Who do you trust? Hmm. Nancy Pelosi going to tell you what, where you get your health care? No. How about Donald Trump, President Trump? No. Yeah, we're in trouble. Yeah. We'll be talking about health care coming up. Just uh, giving you some more insight um, about really some of the numbers are crazy how much it costs to just 10% increase in admin costs in insurance annually. So if insurance keeps going up and going up, most of the cost is not because of inventing a new drug. It's because of admin cost. This is why Obamacare took, what, 18 months to implement and yeah. still got it wrong? Yeah, that's, that's then, probably why President Trump was surprised. The Republicans rolled in and tried to do it in, what, several times over a six, seven-month period and just couldn't get it done? Yeah, but they, they've, got, they've had some last-ditch efforts. Yeah, we were talking about that. It's like there's always a last-ditch, but then there's just another last-ditch. 
So is there a last ditch really, or is there just something you say? Well, the same thing could, same argument could be made for the Fast and the Furious franchise. It's always advertised as the last one, but is it really? No. Exactly. (laughs) There's more furiousness in a fast, you know, measure to, to implement there. But it just seems like there's always someone digging another ditch. I know they, they. There's a point, you and then just, they oversell it by calling it the last one. Yeah, and but boy, you might want to get in this one. <laughs> this is the last one, and then the next guy. Comes it's like up. a used car lot. But then Bernie's claiming we we need a single ditch, one big hole. He'd probably suggest paid for by the government that everyone could just get in one big ditch. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't even know if I like the word. Ditch. ditch? Yeah. 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 Just seems like a hole in the ground. Might Maybe it, a war movie. Maybe the word takes on a different meaning. Maybe it's no longer the last one in the sequence, but it's the previous one in the sequence. You know, that last ditch that we did is really the first ditch. Yeah. Wow. That's Think just, about that. Wow. Mind blown right there. Yeah. <laughs> Something's blown right there. I think, I think we went meta ditch. Yeah. Mm hmm. I don't even know what to say about that. We've got a lot to cover today. Um, also, uh, we'll get you some more empty news. Mm. Stories galore. Don't even know. There's just a lot of little stuff I got to say. Okay. None of it's tied to each other. Really? Yeah. Discombobulated thoughts. Uh-huh. Nice. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about uh, Tesla making a semi truck, semi truck, like a yeah. self driving? Mm hmm. Yeah, they, uh, they have a company. They're out there. It's kind of cool testing. There's other companies. Well, it's not cool for it's not cool for bass. No, no, because this is what we always talk about: the end of the trucker. Well, not necessarily. Mm, that's right. I think there's a lot of laws that states will implement to make it. You know, because we 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 uh, talked last week about the Senate, Congress passing uh, uh, guidelines. Yeah. Or proposed guidelines saying that the states can't just outrightly say no autonomous vehicles, but you can pass safety rules. One of those safety rules could be you have to have someone in the car ready well, to take over. Right. And that's where you get on a, on a, on a freeway and a semi-truck usually just drives straight. Yeah. Right? And so if, and if there's a lane change, you know, they, they could teach a computer how to do that yeah. safely. And it's getting off the freeway and it's, you know, pulling into the depot and all that kind of stuff that you need maybe a human to do. And while they're doing that, the human can do other work. Like that might be a great – the job would be the the computers would get the trucks to the off-ramps and on-ramps and then truck drivers, real talented drivers would pick up those trucks and take them into the cities. Sounds scary <laughs> to me. Why? I think that – see, that's cool because honestly that would probably give all of these drivers that are so skilled the, the opportunity to work and stay home. Mm-hmm. Instead of like being gone for two weeks at a time, maybe they would then have a great job getting that load of stuff through the city and dropping off, going to its three stops or whatever. Right. I can just picture the trucker wanting to make a rest stop or go to his favorite restaurant. Yeah. And then the car saying, I'm sorry, Bass, I can't let you do that. Uh Just what do you think you're doing, Bass? You seem to be the problem. And then it's that's when you want to drive that truck right into a wall. (laughs) <laughs> and shut that car up or that truck up. That also um, might be um, – I, I don't know. Maybe maybe we're ahead of ourselves here. Yeah. Maybe this won't happen for 30 years. Maybe. They have to perfect the technology. It has to be safe. But Tesla's on it. They're trying. We'll all be gone by then anyway, right? Yeah. 30 years. Yeah. But you know what I'm worried about? If 
if we lose truckers, do we lose all of their colorful mud flaps? Mm. <laughs> you know what be. I mean? Yep. Do all of a sudden are there no longer mud flaps with like the mud flap industry would suffer? You're right, <laughs> and we wouldn't do so well in the identify the different states' license plate games when we're traveling. Oh yeah, yeah. those are wild cards. Yeah, you get anything on a semi truck. Yeah, and if you're a child or a kid looking out the back of your car, who would you give the universal sign for honk to to get them to honk? Yeah, whether truck. it's a train or a semi truck, who's going to honk sign. for you? That's a pretty lousy seat you had growing up. Yeah. Oh, I had three sisters that they were kind of rough. That would make me dizzy. Well, usually I was in the back window. You know, like behind, behind the headrest against the glass. Yeah. That's usually where I went. When we <laughs> drive to California, I would just kind of just go in the roaster room. Hmm. We call they called it the penthouse. But it's really just where I'd go dehydrate, just between the glass, dry out. We've got a lot to cover. We'll get to all that fun stuff, but we must start with the headlines. Who better to help us with that than Terry South? Terry, what's going on? President Trump, Vice President Pence are scheduled to visit Naples and Fort Myers in Florida's southwest coast today to see damage from Hurricane Irma and hear from people affected by the storm. Trump said in a Wednesday tweet that he planned to meet with our great Coast Guard, FEMA, and many brave first responders and others. 66% of homes and businesses in Lee County, which include Fort Myers, remain without power on Wednesday. 80% in Collier County, which includes Naples, remain in the dark. But a third of the state's population, about 6.8 million people, still have no electricity in the state's late summer heat. So they're working on it. Yeah, they're getting at it. Uh, Officials in Hollywood, Florida say eight elderly people living in a nursing home died after Hurricane Irma knocked out power, leaving them with no air conditioning. At least 115 people have been evacuated from the rehabilitation center at Hollywood Hills with some respiratory distress. The center, which sits across the street from a hospital with full air conditioning, had as a backup generator, but that doesn't power the air conditioner, a faculty administrator said. Or, yeah, a facility administrator said. And the residents were left in stifling heat. Broward County said that the facility on Tuesday uh, had said it lost power but did not, did not ask for help. Officials in Florida are now visiting other assisted living facilities looking for anyone who might need help. Uh, Governor Rick Scott said several investigations into the incident are underway. So they had air conditioning. It wasn't hooked up to the backup generator, which Uh-oh. was powering the building. Yeah, that's important. And the people were in you know, stifling heat and humidity. And it was right across the street from a hospital. Oh, no. They, the hospital had several people show up to the ER from that rest home. And they're like, this is weird. So they sent some people from the ER over there and found all these people just hanging out. Oh, no way. And eight people died. Mm. Ranging from age 70 to 99. Oh, boy. <laughs> just, That's crazy. Yeah. So they're they're trying to figure this heat, out. Oh, my heavens. Heat exhaustion. Heat exhaustion. They died. Uh, President Trump tweeted early Thursday that no deal was made last night on DACA the morning after Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer and House Majority Leader Nancy Pelosi declared that they reached a tentative pact with him to pursue a legislative fix on the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. In a joint statement Wednesday following their dinner at the White House, Schumer and Pelosi said the trio agreed to enshrine the protections of DACA into law quickly and to work out a package of border security excluding the wall that's acceptable to both sides. But in a pre-dawn tweet, Trump wrote massive border security would have to be agreed to in exchange for consent, would be subject to vote, and his border wall with Mexico would be built. So, so one side said all this all this was agreed to, and then Trump came out this morning and said no. What happened in the middle was that there what would be 
I guess, considered the right-wing media went nuts yeah. after Pelosi and McConnell, not so McConnell, it, but uh, it was probably it really was probably agreed to with a political handshake and a wink, wink. You, you know how those politicians are, right? And then the Dems leaked it, and when the Dems leaked it, the conservative media flipped out. Yeah, they called him uh, Amnesty Dawn. They said, you're you're going back on your agreement with America. Well, but you're, interesting, uh, it looks like what he's trying to actually do is ensure that the immigration stuff goes through. Right. So he's just, this is a really weird moment because it seems like he's actually politicking. He is. This is what you do. You, you he's actually some, being a politician. Yeah. And in a weird thing, this seems like to be... Bicameral. What's the word? This seems to be bipartisan. Bo- bipartisan. Both sides are starting or he's to. he's just making a deal. This was locker room talk. <laughs> Certainly I'm not proud of it. Well, yeah. But, you know, but this, this I, may be how the, the man ends up getting reelected. Other people pointed out, and we had an author on, I think last year, who wrote a book about kind of how Donald Trump does business. Sometimes there's been accused yeah. of doing business where he hires contractors, agrees to a deal. After the work is done, he starts going, eh, I don't know about this. And then you yeah. don't pay him. Ah. And then they go to court and they settle it out of court for less money. It's and a then, little lawsuit. Hmm. And he's won. So I don't know. Who knows what he's trying to do? Crazy. But the Democratic aide said that Trump was clear he would continue to fight for the wall separate from the agreement. Trump's tweets this morning seemed to indicate his support of details. Um, the reporter. So he seems to be on both sides of this. If depending on who you're listening to, yes, are the Democrats right? Is Trump saying the right thing? Who knows? This is uh, cool. I, mean, I actually, I just like a little bipartisan work. I think but... the important thing is he sat down with the leaders of the Democrats and yeah. had me a meal last night, which he hasn't even talked to these people in months. Right. So at right. least they're talking. Right. I mean, that's that's different. Yeah. We'll put a steak in front of me, and I'll be there too. No, you're not invited. Just go dig a ditch. Finally, relationships are more likely to be successful when the woman is paired up with a less attractive man, according to a new study. Yes! That's what I've been telling my wife! (laughs) Researchers from Florida State and Southern Methodist University in Texas analyzed 113 newlyweds, all married less than four months, in their late 20s, living in the Dallas area. A (laughs) full-bodied photograph was taken of each subject who was ranked on a scale of 1 to 10 in terms of facial and body attractiveness. The researchers also gave the lovebirds questionnaires focused on their willingness to diet and stay in shape. But was this done by Tinder? Yeah, I know. Some of these statements presented were, I feel extremely guilty after eating, I like my stomach to be empty, and I am terrified of gaining weight. Wow. The study had Mm. Beauty and the Beast results. Women were happier with less genetically blessed hubbies who compensated in their their relationship with acts of kindness, including giving gifts or completing extra housework. Mm -hmm. Uh, The husbands seemed to be basically more committed, more invested in pleasing their wives when they felt like they were getting a pretty good deal, the study said. Yeah, like we scored. Yeah. Meanwhile, you know, outkick your coverage is uh, another way (laughs) to say that. Meanwhile, women who had not had... Women who had hot husbands were found to be more likely obsessed over exercising and dieting in an effort to stay slim. The results reveal that having a physically attractive husband may have a negative consequence for wives or for wives, especially if those wives are not particularly attractive, said Tanya Reynolds, an FSU psychology doctoral student. So if the guy has a hot wife, yeah. 
He's all in. He, he seems yeah. to be more Works eager harder. to work hard on the relationship. What can I do to make you happy? Right. But if the woman has a hot husband, she has more like self-consciousness, wants to diet, and really concerned about the way she looks. And Interesting. Might have more of a uh, psychological impact on her. Have you... Okay. Let's just take the theory. Then the question last night with my wife, I go, who's who here? Well, How I, does this work? No, 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 no. It's fairly <laughs> obvious. <laughs> oh, yeah, it is. It's fairly obvious. And... But when you look at our pairings, our wives with us, I mean, I guess the key is you just need to identify who's the most, who's the best looking person. Okay. And then adjust your behavior. And then realize that (laughs) your wife married down. Yeah. Wow. So on a scale of one to 10, what are you? Um... To your wife. How does she see you? She see. Oh, no. I'm definitely a six to her. Probably less. Well, what about to you? Yeah, what do you see yourself as? What are you? What do I see myself as? Yes. Oh, boy. Probably a 9.876. Good for you. Wow. Good for you. Well, I have multiple categories. Such humility. Uh, Not a 10, but 9. I don't, I mean, I don't, I mean, I'm not perfect. Right. I understand. Well, (laughs) that's what I tell her. I'm not, I'm not perfect, honey. But I, as I'm trying to convince her every night how lucky she is, um, (laughs) she's, she always kind of brings up like studies like this. Yeah, yeah. That, honey, it doesn't matter. It just what matters is that we are stuck with each other forever. <laughs> You've made the most horrible decision in your life, and you can't go back on it. It's good. Don't worry about it. Beauty and the Beast. That's really. It makes sense. They're tra- they're trapped, but they also don't have to. They don't have to try to keep up. Now is this with us? Because there's not is much this to keep study up with. more influenced by like society's ideas versus what truly is existing in the relationship. No, I, you are know people what? looking I'm at like bet. what other people are thinking about their husband or wife, and so they need no, to. No, it might, it might, but I bet a lot of it has more to do with the idea that um, the guy that maybe isn't as good looking brings something else to the relationship mm. that is that's engaging. computer skills. Maybe he's maybe, really funny. Maybe he's really funny, or maybe a vast comic book collection. He's in, no. <laughs> No. Maybe he's like an incredible gamer. No. Okay, but so. maybe he actually makes a lot of money. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Or maybe he um, is really good with kids. So you're going with the gold digger approach no, to I'm saying, relationships. I'm saying, so the looks, if we're not, if we're categorizing wow. looks that way, oh, okay, then yeah. she probably married him for some other reason. Mm, his my, car. My wife yeah. basically <laughs> told me the only reason she married me is because I was in a comedy troupe at school. See? Yeah, but you were really more of like the – you were just more like security with the troop. <laughs> you were like the ticket Yeah, guy. you were at the door. You were the ticket man, right? Wrong. See, I told my wife she married me because I had a blue truck and she really liked it. Yeah, I doubt that. She didn't think so. But. She's not a truck. Does she like trucks? Oh, yeah. So maybe it's true. Until I added a 40-minute trip every morning and gas got yeah. crazy. Then all of a sudden mm. we're car people. Woo. Yeah, now we're like Prius people. <laughs> Daddy but loves yeah, a Prius. I found that interesting. It's a great study. That's and by the way, again, what you only get on this show. Mm. Other right. shows don't spend the time that we spend on helping people find love and keep love. Now off to the cupboard with you, Matt. <laughs> that sounded like Silence of the Lambs guy. Hannibal Lecter? Yeah. Hello, Clarice. It sounded exactly like that. And now you're putting it's me in a cupboard. Good to see you again. <laughs> Yikes. Okay, a little, a few chills for you every morning. Well, up next, we're going to be talking about uh, 
market economy and healthcare is is it the reason it's not working very well? You, you, maybe you need a, a different approach. Interesting insight. Straight ahead, this is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Every year, America spends more on health care than we did the year before. This past year, our country spent an average of over $10,000 per person on health care-related uh, costs. Currently, health care is a hotly debated political topic, and some are advocating market competition, while others believe that uh, maybe a single-payer system would be best. Here to discuss with us why he believes market competition hasn't brought down health care costs over the many years is uh, J- Jerry Friedman. Jerry is an economics professor at the University of Massachusetts and uh, has a lot, I, th- I think, to offer us in understanding what's really going on with our health care costs. Dr. Friedman, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, thank you so much for having me. This is such a complicated issue. And um, even reading your article, the, the numbers blow my mind in how much our costs go up in health care annually. Talk, talk to us what, what's going on. First of all, what are the numbers? How, how much is our health care uh, costs in, in increasing every year? And what do you suggest is the problem? Well, the numbers are mind-boggling um, to the extent that sometimes I get confused and say billions where I should say trillions. Oh, man. Uh, you know, we're talking about trillions of dollars. In this country, we spend about $3 trillion on health care or about $10,000 per person, man, woman, and child. Um, that number goes up about 5 to 6% a year. It's been doing that since 1970. Um, actually, since the mid-1960s, it's been rising at that rate. Um, population growth is about 1% a year. Inflation is about 2% a year. So health care is rising faster than everything else, faster than the number of people, faster than regular prices, by 2 to 3% a year. Or, in other words, uh, we're talking about with every year we have to dip into our pockets and pull out another $200 billion. Um, and you can't keep it up. You can't keep yeah, it up. Yeah, that's squeezing everything else. Um, we see it in Massachusetts. I'm sure you see it out in Utah, yeah. where edu- local education budgets are cut because of rising cost of health insurance for our teachers and other employees. Um, taxes have to go up to fund needed health care services for Medicaid. Um, and uh, other public health. Um, And this is happening despite the fact that our health care is not getting better. And for many people, it's getting worse. Right. So quality is dropping, but costs are always going up. Costs are going up because prices are rising. We are not getting more health care. We're not getting better health care. Some people are, but many of us are not. Um, But the price of what we get keeps going up. Um, and this, you could think of this as we've, in 1971, the United States and Canada conducted an experiment in social policy. In 1971, Canada established this program that it calls Medicare. Um, I swear, they call it that just to make fun of us. <laughs> this is a single payer system where the government pays all the bills. Um, so you pay taxes, 
just like you do to fund the fire department, and you go to the hospital, you go to a doctor, and you swipe your medical card, and that's it. You're done. Billing is over. Um, the doctor doesn't have to have people in her office um, dealing with insurance companies. Um, it just, you know, just types in the diagnostic code, the treatment code, and money shows up from the government. By the way, do they do they pay uh, in the Canadian program? Does does it pay like commensurate to the uh, to the United States program? Does the doctor make as much? Doctors gross less money. But they're not paying for yeah, people. Their staff, they don't have to staff up. Staffing. So on balance, doctors are making about the same. Hmm. Um, now, in 1971, in the United States, we started a pilot program initiate, encouraged by President Nixon at the time um, and you know, sponsored by various prominent economists uh, that came to be known as health maintenance organizations. And we also started encouraging competition. You know, in 1971, we basically had a single-payer program in this country because almost everybody had insurance through Blue Cross Blue Shield. Mm. Uh, but we opened that up to competition. Blue Cross Blue Shield was a nonprofit. It was a monopoly, a regulated monopoly in most states. Um, and we got rid of those regulations. We got rid of regulations. We used to have most states had regulations on hospital prices. We got, got rid of those. Most states prevented hospitals from forming mergers. Um, we got rid of those to encourage market competition. The result is, in 1971, life expectancy in the United States was about two years less than Canada, and we were spending a little bit more than Canada. Now, life expectancy in the United States is about four years less than Canada. Oh, man. We're spending about twice, almost twice as much as Canada, 60% more than Canada. Unbelievable. Um, our spending, and, and it's not just Canada, compared to every other country in the world, er, sorry, every other advanced capitalist economy in the world, our spending has risen while they're sp much faster than their spending, while our life expectancy has fallen further and further behind. We're doing worse and worse while spending more and more. And the reason is that market competition does not work in healthcare. Now talk and tell us why, because that that we all the time we're hearing you know, kind of market competition versus single payer. And now even Bernie Sanders is now talking and has been forever talking about single payer system. But it seems like so many people are afraid of turning over health care to the government or to one entity. Why? Why isn't it? Why is it so much more expensive in a you'd think the market would bring the cost down? Um, I grew up, my father was a businessman, and my brothers run businesses. Um, they've, they've all been very successful. And the way they've been successful is by producing a better product at a lower price. That's what we look to the markets to do. That's what we look for competition to encourage. But it doesn't work that way in healthcare. First, you take the health insurers. Health insurers do not increase their profits by providing a better product. If you provide a better product, then you attract more sick people to your plan. Yeah, this is important. Talk, talk yeah. lemons and cherries. That, exactly. 70% of your course as a health insurer go to 10% of your people. The goal is to find those 10%, the lemons, drive them out, and find the healthy people and attract them, cherry picking. 
Mm. That's how you increase your profits. And all this involves a lot of administrative expense because you have to identify the people and you have to set up programs to attract or to drive away people. Um, one of the most effective ways to drive people away is to restrict coverage, uh, to make a worse health insurance policy. Um, healthy people don't even know that there are all these hassles that you have to jump through to get uh, reimbursed um, or that programs don't cover certain things. You only find those out when you're sick. And at that point, the insurer doesn't want you anymore. So that's one expense. And it's about $200 billion in extra spending for insurance administration. Yeah, you said it. I think in the article, what was it? It goes up. Yeah, you said like it goes up 10% annually just for admin cost. Yes, yes. Marketing. I mean, there's also marketing costs. Yeah. Which Medicare doesn't bother with because everybody's in Medicare. Um, uh, and of course, profits. Um, and the high salaries. The head of the, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Statistics in the United, uh, Services in the United States is responsible for health care for about half the population. Everybody on Medicare, everybody on Medicaid, people on other pu- uh, public programs. Um, that person is paid, she is paid about $220,000 a year. By contrast, the seven heads, the seven CEOs of the largest health insurers are paid in total over $100 million. Oh, man. Almost $14 million apiece. Yeah, that, and that they, all comes out of premiums. Right, there's, all, there's your cost right there. That's right. That's right. So that's one cost. But there's an even larger cost, which is pushed out of the insurance companies onto providers. Go to your doctor next time. Next time you go to your doctor, look around the office. You will find people who spend their entire day processing paper for the health insurance companies, billing, finding the codes, answering queries. The average American doctor spends six hours a week dealing with insurance companies. And about 25% of the revenue that goes into a doctor's office goes for paying for these activities. Um, uh, Massachusetts General Hospital in the mid-1990s had about, 200, they had about 400 beds, and they had 250 people doing medical billing. By contrast, Toronto General Hospital in Canada, with a single-payer system, same size, about 400 beds, they had two people doing billing. <laughs> yeah. Now, when I said this, this is mid-1990s, I said this about 10 years ago when I was testifying in Boston, um, and afterwards a legislator came up to me and said she had texted her husband, who works at Mass General, and there are now 453 people doing billing. That was as of 2008. Yeah, but that's progress yeah, <laughs> in the wrong yeah, direction. I mean, it's, it's regress. Our right. course keep going up so much. Right. Finally, the third thing is insurers, and here I start sounding like, you know, I'm sympathetic with the insurance companies, which on this I actually am. Um, Insurance companies are relatively weak bargaining agents because there's so much competition. Hmm. Uh, There are eight insurance companies in Massachusetts with about a hundred different plans. Um, Each insurance company negotiates independently with the hospitals. And if the hospital demands an elite hospital like Massachusetts General, 
Um, it's part of the partners system. The Harvard Teaching Hospitals formed a monop- formed a you know an alliance, and they now control about a quarter of the hospitals in the state, including most of the elite hospitals. And they set prices. And if the insurance company doesn't like it, the insurance company's out of luck. This happened a couple of years ago. Tufts Health Plan um, decided it was not going to put up with these prices because they were about four times what any other hospital in the state charges. Mm. And they got away with it because Tufts, within 48 hours, had to surrender and accept the price list because you can't go to people and say, oh, you know, we have an insurance plan, but you know what? It doesn't cover the hospital you actually want to go to. Yeah. And the same for drugs. The VA negotiates drug prices. The Veterans Administration, yeah. they pay a little more than half what the rest of us pay. Because there are 9 million people covered, and they have bargaining leverage. Individual insurance companies can't negotiate effectively with the drug companies. They're too small. Medicare does, not with the drug companies, but with the hospitals. Medicare does not pay what Mass General wants. It pays what Medicare says is a reasonable service, a reasonable price for the service. Um, so the monopoly power of the drug companies um, and the hospitals probably drives up our cost by over $200, million, $200 billion, like I said, I get yeah. confused, $200 billion a year. And it's rising because there are more and more of these hospital alliances and monopolies. It's not working. So altogether, we're yeah. probably wasting over $700 billion a year. Um, just on the on these areas, administrative waste and monopoly pricing, um, and a single payer system could get rid of that waste. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Gerald Friedman, who's a professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts. He's walking us through just the numbers of what's really happening in our healthcare system. Uh, not we don't have the the highest quality of health care either, which is, uh, you know, that would be a really interesting fact if we, with all of this chaos and the increasing costs, if we actually were providing uh, even better health care service, but we're not necessarily doing that. Jerry, talk to us, um, because one of the things, uh, when I hear of single-payer system, I I worry just simply because, you know, I don't want I, I don't know that I've, I've seen the government, for example, be really incredible at um, anything necessarily. So I and I maybe that's naive of me, but I don't want it to turn into a VA situation. And that's kind of the rhetoric you hear out there. But but then like right there, you just quoted the fact that the VA is getting a better deal on on pharmaceuticals. So. Is does the single payer system would it have to be the government or could it could there be some consortium or something else that could appear? Uh, it absolutely does not have to be civil servants. It doesn't have to be the government. And in fact, Medicare today conducts most of its business dealings through private companies. Uh, the billing operations of Medicare are put out to bid, huh. and that. They're handled by private insurance companies, um, and Medicare uses the market discipline where it is useful in driving down the cost of processing bills. That's real. That's that's good use of the market. Yeah. Um, as against uh, you know um, you know this uh, adverse selection, uh, cherry picking and lemon dropping that the private insurance companies would do on their own. Um, so we can have. Also, single-payer doesn't involve the government owning hospitals or 
employing doctors or death it's panels. Not the VA. Yeah, right. It's private provision of healthcare, as happens in Canada, as happens in France, as happens in Germany, Italy. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, in uh, a couple, three years ago, I was in Italy on a sabbatical, and our younger daughter visited us. We took the train up from Rome to Florence, and she got, she was getting an earache. So we ended up going into the hospital, the local hospital, to get, you know, to see a doctor. Um, it was free. My wife was waving her, insur- her credit card, and, you know, the doctor just kept saying, ciao, ciao, all done. No pay. <laughs> Italian hospital, not like America. Um, <laughs> and they gave us two prescriptions. Um, I went to a private pharmacy, just like I would in the United States, and I was thinking, yeah, I kind of know these drugs. They're going to be like $100, $80. Uh, how am I going to get reimbursed for my insurance in America? Uh, but, you know, daughter needs them. So we go in. I, I go in. Right away, the pharmacist gives me the drugs because he doesn't have to look up insurance or anything. And they came to $15 for the two of them because the Italian government negotiates drug prices and then resells the drugs at cost hmm. plus expenses to the independent pharmacies. The pharmacies compete. You know, they're businesses. Yeah. You know, guy owns his own pharmacy, um, just like my uncle used to. You know, <laughs> but, uh, you know, and he tries to do a good job, attract business, um, but he's able to buy the drugs at a discount compared to Americans. In this case, it was a discount of about 75%, which is a little high. But uh, um, Interesting. But, so there yeah, could be a mix, too, right? Have, I mean, the, the benefit is the government could buy them, and then um, you're going to get the lowest price possible, but, um, and then I guess resell those to other places. Yes, yes, to private agencies, to private companies. Yeah. So you're not, you don't have government run healthcare, uh, but you have government doing what it's good at, which is collecting taxes and dispersing and writing checks um, and regulating the system so that everybody has a good insurance policy, right. you know, which right. would be much more extensive in what Bernie Sanders is proposing and what other people have talked about um, in single payer. They usually plan for something um, that covers pretty much all medical expenses. Um, they call it improved Medicare for all. Mm. And what, what I love, the, the lesson you taught us about lemon dropping and cherry picking, if it were a single-payer system, all of the people would have to be in that system. So lemons and cherries would go together and we'd have like a nice fruit salad. <laughs> but um, <laughs> right. I mean, that's I guess right. that's the idea, right? Also, there's another factor here. Think about it. Your health insurance company doesn't necessarily want to do things that will keep you healthy. If the benefits are going to happen years in the future, some other insurance company will benefit. They don't care. Mm. You know, they, they just care about you this year. Now, with a single-payer system, there is an incentive to keep everybody healthy because the government is going to be stuck with you. True, they huh? Can't, yeah. They can't get rid of you. Uh, so they want you to stay healthy. Um, and that's part of why um, other countries have been more effective in health education um, and, lo- and providing preventive services than we have. 
because our insurance companies don't have an interest in that. Um, they only have an interest in getting you through this year. And if you're going to be somebody who's going to be getting sick, they don't want to encourage you to take that plan. Hmm. We're speaking um, again with Dr. Jerry Friedman. Jerry, we have about one minute left. What would you – what do you suggest to all of us who sit here and we watch the arguments um, going on on Capitol Hill about our health care, and yet we're – many of us are just so misinformed, uninformed. Um, what should we do to maybe to maybe be more informed and have a better say in what goes on with our health care? Um, uh, absolutely. People can do better. Um, anytime people give a bumper sticker slogan like, oh, well, single pay would just cost more or the government can't do anything, yeah. ask them to explain exactly why. And ask them why, if single payer would be such a disaster, it works so much better in every other country in the world than our private health insurance system works here. Um, Finally, uh, I'd ask a question. I was once at a meeting with a bunch of health insurance executives, and I asked a friend, well, what do you think I should say to them? Uh, He said, ask them what value they add to our health care system. What do we get out of the $200-plus billion we spend on the private health insurance system? What do they add to our Hmm. welfare I think the answer is nothing. Nothing. That's a that's a great question, especially when we see healthcare quality dropping, especially in relation to something like someone like Canada, where we had this little experiment in 1971 from a, a single payer version to the HMO competitive market version. It seems like we're losing that uh, that game. And again, I I get it's a scary concept to think of a single payer system when we move that way, but. If we get the data, uh, I mean, we're smart people, too. We can control this. It doesn't mean you lose everything and all this control. What you may lose are people processing papers just to get their money. Anyway, we'll continue the journey, folks. More straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. You know, we live in a day and age when at some point you you have to do your own thinking, right? You have to, at some point, not just take my word for it or listen to the party line or assume that your party, whatever political persuasion is setting you up to succeed or even the talking heads that you love to listen to. Because, like, what I'm finding out doing this show, I, I didn't know much about healthcare. I didn't know much about single payer systems or any, or, you know, the free market HMO model. I didn't know anything about it. I was never interested in it because I'm just an average dude. And the reality of what I'm finding is the more I study, the more I learn, the more we have guests on, like Jerry, um, we are woefully uninformed. We have no clue what we're talking about. But if I brought this up, at dinner with you know my family at Thanksgiving, I, everyone would have an opinion, but none of them would have the data that we just heard from Jerry. None of them would know that admin costs on healthcare go up ten percent, and that overall the costs of healthcare go up six percent, right? And so when inflation only goes up two percent or three percent, so 
something's not right here and nobody has the data, but we all talk as if we do. So why don't we all, instead of just spewing the company line or throwing out what one you know news channel is saying, and why don't we just open up our minds and get actually informed? So I challenge you, all of us, to go be more informed. It doesn't ha- – whatever you learn in all of your information, but seek out some healthy, neutral information and gather the data and then formulate an opinion. And you'll be amazed, I think, what happens – when we actually have an informed and formulated opinion. Power, that's where power comes. And an understanding, instead of just, you'll see why the quagmire exists, because people keep speaking without information. They keep using talking points handed down by insurance companies and political parties. Let's just get informed. That's all I'm suggesting. We'll continue the journey straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. Up next, friends, you know, when you when you go to McDonald's, do you ever do you ever have this feeling that, boy, there's just not enough French fries? I mean, I just always I just want more fries. Always. Well, according to Huffington Post, they, they have a story about how McDonald's is now denying the claims that employees are taught to underfill the fries. It's crazy. They uh, apparently there's people that are arguing that um, when you're at McDonald's, they've been trained to pinch the bottom of the carton. And by pinching the bottom of the carton, not as many fries go in. So I've actually done some voiceover trainings for McDonald's. Have you now? Unfortunately, I didn't do the fries. It was just the McFlurries. Bummer. So I can't help you. Do do they underfill the McFlurry cup? No, I don't think so. Well, McDonald's is saying we do not do this. We don't do it. That's not that's not what we do. But it turned into a, a Reddit firestorm, right? And uh, here's, here's a quote. In fact, I worked at McDonald's and they taught me how to pinch the fry carton just right while putting in the fries so it looked like it was full, but it actually wasn't. I only had one customer call me out on it. He shook the fries out of his bag and poured them uh, back into the fry carton himself. It only filled up halfway. Ooh. So I had to give him more fries. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy stuff. But McDonald's is denying the charges. Terry Hickey, a spokesperson for McDonald's, told Huffington Post via email, the notion of a secret trick is absolutely false. There are strict procedures to play in place to ensure that fry boxes and bags are appropriately filled so our customers can enjoy our world-famous fries to the fullest. What do you think? You think they're trying to pull a fast one on us? Well, I'm sure. I mean, you know it's pretty routine because – have you ever noticed sometimes you'll get a drink at a, at a place like this, Any it could be anywhere, and you there's it's just all ice? Oh, yeah, for sure. So is that an accident? No. It's My wife will ask for light ice. Yeah, I do too. Light ice. I hate fat ice. I want light. Yes. Extra light ice. That, that, yeah, I can't stand the ice that is so fattening. Ugh. High fat eyes. Anyway, McDonald's says they're not doing it. There is business. There's money to be made. But no matter what happens, there's not enough fries in a Happy Meal. But that will always be a problem there needs regardless to be more. of whether or not they're pulling this fast one on us. If McDonald's really loves America, I beg you, give us more fries. Help us die faster. That's the American Let's way. Let's just get this over with. <laughs> 
Cool stuff. We'll continue the journey, folks. Uh, You're not going to want to miss it. Next hour, we're talking how to delegate, which I've been trying to do with these boys all day. Not working. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome back to the program. Dr. Matt here along with uh, Jeff Simpson and Terry South. The gang, we have, uh, we've, we've organized the crew and have uh, created a lot of great content for you this hour. Wonderful interview. From uh, on why or really how to delegate, how to hand off a task. When do you know it's time to turn it over to someone else? When you forgot that it was due. Yeah, like when it was yeah due yesterday. Like about an hour before. You're like, Ooh. Isn't that why Palakiko's here? Yeah. To hand it off to Palakiko? Yeah. yeah. I look at it as when I don't want to do something. Yeah. You delegate it to someone else. Yeah. But the funny thing is then Palakiko, when you leave, comes in my office. Uh-huh. And he's like, I don't know how to do this. Okay. So then I delegate him mm. to Sean. Oh, nice. Yeah. Just push it down the hallway. Yeah. And then Sean, I'm pretty sure, then takes it to Mark. Mm-hmm. And then Mark takes it eventually to Don. Sure. Well, this- And then Don calls me and says, what's going on? And then I check with you, Terry. Yeah. And then you say it was Palakiko. Nice. Yeah. How many times, though, have you been laying down on the couch and uh, you really don't want to get up to get the remote or get your water <laughs> bottle, so you send your kids in to do yeah. it for you? Well, I, I try that, but my wife doesn't like that. Oh, really? No, my wife is like, they're not your servant. Mm. And I'm like, well, hold, hold, hold it. Okay. Yes, they are. But now getting getting back to your spouse, how many times with your spouse, are you, you're sitting there on the bed, you're thinking... Oh, I really need this one item that's in the kitchen, but I really don't want to get up and get it. And then you see your wife get up and walk out of the room and say, oh, by the way, while you're in there, can you get yeah. my water bottle? Yeah. Does she then, does she do this? <sighs> sure. My wife doesn't do that. But the, have you ever felt like, oh, I don't want to ask too much. I don't want to bother her. I, ne- I never ask my wife to do anything, really. So It's not what she said when she called yesterday. Well, she's constantly having to ask me to do things because I have a short attention span and a bad memory. Oh, is that what we're saying? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, we'll be talking delegating tasks today. Also, I mean, for example, what about a really small task? Like what about a, a task that takes you 50 minutes to sit on the phone and listen? Mm. But I guess, it, too, it all depends on if you have people to delegate to. If you don't have anyone to delegate it to... Then you're the person that gets delegated to. Yeah. I've got a really weird situation, and I, I need some help. So if anybody out there in listener land has some ideas, uh, my, I, have an, I, have an, I have an office where I do private coaching and counseling, and we have trainings and workshops and all of these things. And I have never employed my wife, mm. but my wife is now my assistant. Hmm. And somebody asked me just yesterday, what's it like uh, with your wife as your assistant? And it's, it's actually quite nice. Yeah. But it's also a little weird because sometimes I don't know how to delegate to my wife because I feel like I'm just giving her more work. 
That was just – we just had a sad moment just what, happen. Yeah, what happened there? Palakiko was standing there in this nice suit waiting for you to acknowledge him. Yeah. And we just talked about how he was our delegator or yeah. delegatee. Yeah. Yeah, I was just doing my show. Hmm. Might want to tell him that when the red light's on. Just doing my show. Darn, now I feel bad. I'll go out at a break and say hi to him. Um, no, you won't. <laughs> so I don't, so we'll, we've, I'm going to learn from Jenny Blake as well in a few minutes about how we delegate and what we can turn over, what we can't turn over, and, and how we even decide if we should be doing something. Just because it, it needs to be done doesn't mean it needs to be done by you or you, maybe you don't even need to do it. How many times has somebody knocked on your door and you thought, I better answer that? Yeah. My, I, don't, I don't feel that way. My wife is like Moses. And I'm like Jethro trying to tell her, you know, you need to not do so much or I can do some oh. of this. Oh, you're talking – I was thinking like facial hair. Oh, no. Yeah, apparently Moses had a lot of facial hair. No. I've I think, seen the movie. That's I think exactly everyone <laughs> in that time period yeah. had facial hair. No, I think I, I think you're absolutely It's not right. like we had this robust yeah. men's razor industry that No, was even out the there. women. Right? I guess. But that's just because it was the style. Well, they weren't plucking back then. But again, it was a stylistic choice. Totally. <laughs> it was. See, we're much better off nowadays. Don't you think? People can control, you know, facial hair. You know what I love it's is great. when uh, you're driving down the road and you look over, there's something about the light in your car that if you actually look in the mirror, I have this thing where I don't look in the mirror a lot. I don't really like what I see. Really? So I don't. I don't always look in the mirror. So, I mean, there's times I've, like, walked out with, you know, my tie wrong or backwards or my zipper down or something. Dinner I, from last night in your yeah, teeth. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, but it's interesting when you watch women, like, like feeling for chin hairs or plucking at the light. It's interesting. They're grooming. Wow. I just, I just look at them. I just stare. Every time I try to have like a moment mm-hmm. with my wife, hold you on. know, hold on. just like staring at each other and, you know, being lost in each other's eyes, that sort of thing. Wow. She immediately, she immediately will start scanning my face for those very things. Like blemishes. Like yeah. Little white hairs mm-hmm. where, you know, where a beard's coming yeah. in or Ooh, can I maybe, pop that? Yeah. Oh, exactly. Isn't that? Yeah. So you're trying to you're trying to look into her eyes, maybe create a moment. Like lure her into the trap that we call Jeffrey Liam Simpson. Mm-hmm. That's great. And she's like, "Oh, you've got you've got a little rash there." Yeah, it sounds loving. She's just, and I hope I am not crossing any lines saying this, but You'll she's find out. she's just admitted to having this type of mania where like you can't stop pulling on your hair. Yeah. So I had to get her one of those fidget cubes. Oh, really? Yeah. Is it a hairy one? No. <laughs> Those hairy Yes, it comes cues. with its own coat. It's great. That's interesting. I Maybe she's pulling her hair out over me. That's, I... It's I, probably, yeah. I think you nailed it. Seems fairly obvious. Today we're going to learn about... That's delegate. great. Yeah. Pretty fun stuff. Plus, uh, of course, we've got a lot of empty news today and uh, carjacking included. We will get to an armed carjacking that was foiled when a teen didn't know how to drive a manual transmission. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, if we're anything on this show, we are about education. We are about inspiration and elevation. Wow. Uh, right. Those are the three shuns. Education, inspiration, elevation. Perspiration. That's a P. Yeah. Kind of ruins the pattern. But yeah, totally we get is. what you mean. We get what your, your point, what you, what you were attempting. Yeah. Good so job. we will uh, – we've also got some new um, – Sponsors on the show and a new product on the show as well. So We do? Yeah. Oh. We'll get to all of that straight ahead. Plus, watch out for library fines. You can't pay them with Chuck E. Cheese tokens. Oh, so Sorry. what am I supposed to do with the Chuck nope. E. Cheese tokens? You also cannot use Kohl's cash. We learned that. Wow. How about Canadian coins? No. Come Unless on. Those, in, if those, you're in Canada. The yeah. penny and the Canadian coin, they're yeah. practically yeah. identical. Go to Canada, Alberta. Tons of fun. We will continue uh, all of that. But first, let's get to our headlines with Terry South. Terry, fill us in. What's going on? A student was killed and three others injured when a gunman opened fire at a high school in Washington State on Wednesday. The student who died was reportedly a sophomore boy, and the three who were injured were female students. The shooting happened in a hallway outside of a classroom. Officials said the shooter is in custody and that he is a uh, sophomore at the school. That's pretty much all the information at the time because, you know, underage kids, you know, not a lot of yeah, information that gets out. But huge response. A lot of people Shoot. scared. Where, where was the shooting? Washington. Oh, boy. I think Sneer Spokane is the – well, that was the name I saw in the trucks responding to the situation. So. Darn it. A federal lawsuit filed Wednesday claims that the U.S. government growing practice of searching laptops and cell phones at the border is unconstitutional because electronic devices now carry troves of private personal and business information. This out of the AP, the uh, but the government has uh, ferociously defended its searches as critical to protecting the homeland. The Fourth Amendment of the Constitution prohibits unse- unreasonable searches and seizures and requires law enforcement to uh, secure warrants based on probable cause. Courts, however, have made an exception for searches at U.S. ports of entry and airports. They've ruled the government can do warrantless border searches to enforce immigration and custom laws and protect national security. In today's digital world, these searches should not be conducted without a warrant. The Electronic Frontier Foundation and the ACLU agree. Top officials of the Department of Homeland Security and two of its units, Customs and Border Protection and Immigration and Customs Enforcement, are named in the lawsuit. Mm. So now we're going to challenge if they can just grab your phone and make you, like a lot of phones have fingerprint scanners yeah. now. So can they make you put your thumb on there? Some say they Give can. Give me your thumb. Uh, if you turn your phone off, as they turn the phone back on, uh, some phones you have to put in a pin code. That's right. At that point, the, some laws in some states say you don't have to provide the pin code. Now, do you remember, this reminds me of the police officer that tried to get the blood sample from oh, the nurse right. in Utah. You just don't want them to like arrest you to get your thumbprint. Right. But now it'll be facial recognition if you have a Yeah. And so 10. Congress is asking for... Um, the makers of that certain device, I don't want a certain soundbite to play, so the, yeah. make the iPhone. Want, uh, <laughs> they, they want those people in front of Congress to explain how this facial recognition system works and how does that go when it comes to law enforcement? How are you going to cooperate that way? Oh, interesting. But yeah, because I guess if you, even if you're unconscious, they could go they just put beep. your phone yeah. up on your face and, okay, we're in. <laughs> so I, I don't know how that works, so we'll Wild. see. Target is increasing the number of people it hires to work during the holidays by 40% to 100,000 people. The Minneapolis 
Retailers said Wednesday that the seasonal hire is up 30,000 from uh, 70,000 people last year. We'll stock shelves that it's more than 1,800 stores to fulfill online orders uh, that customers actually pick up in the stores. In addition, it plans to hire 4,500 people to help pack and ship online orders at its warehouses. The company has seen online orders soar after it strengthened its online business and offered faster delivery. Target said it will hold nationwide hiring events from October 13th through October 15th Hmm. to interview candidates. Cool. But, again, seasonal jobs. Yeah. So these jobs go away first of the year. Unless they... Keep At least you on. It's a job. I guess. Yeah. So we'll see. Uh, finally, though many might never admit it publicly, a new survey finds that four in ten adults, um, adult Americans, sleep with a teddy bear at night. Four in ten. Four in ten sleep with a teddy bear. And many of those bears are the same bears they kept from childhood. Really? That's a nasty That's a bear. That's a funky bear. <laughs> the uh, popular custom uh, teddy bear outlet Build-A-Bear commissioned the survey with over uh, 2,000 Americans to gauge their views on the furry friends and came away with some surprising findings. More than half of the survey participants indicated they currently own a stuffed animal and 40% indicate the toy joins them at bedtime. Perhaps most surprisingly, most of the plush toys out there are no spring chickens. 56% of those polled said that they've held on to their favorite stuffed animal from childhood for at least two decades. This perhaps is a reflection of the fact that 72% of respondents want to keep their stuffed animals forever. As for the feelings and emotions associated with one stuffed animal, 30% said that they thought they thought of comfort, 22% thought of the person who gave them the toy, and 19% thought about the appearance of their most dear animal. Really? Hmm. Did you have a stuffed animal, Matt? Or do you have a stuffed animal? Uh, I don't have a stuffed animal, but I do sleep with a bear. I'm Whoa! Just wow! Whoa. We were talking about I'm facial hair kidding. on women earlier. <laughs> That's funny, though. Wow! I don't have a stuffed animal. In fact, I'm thinking uh, I used to. Mm. I'm, all of a sudden, I, I really was. I was like, "Where did my bear go?" Yeah. What happened to that? I used to have a bear. Uh, no, I don't. Do you have one, Jeffrey? No. Although when we were super baby crazy before our first child arrived. We bought a couple of stuffed animals in anticipation, and we got a little attached to those. Yeah, that's cute. We did We that named too. them, too. By the way, in high school, I gave my wife a bear that we called Sarah Bear. Hmm. And then we, I gave her another bear this is getting weird. that we called I – think, I think we called it Jake. Huh. Or was it Josh? Anyway, two of my kids are named after those bears. So My first daughter was Sarah, and she, by the way, not a bear. We still have one of the two stuffed animals, Pigsley. Cute. It's one of those uh, pill- pillow pets. And we also had a giant round cow in a tutu that we called Llewellyn. Beautiful name. Which is actually a boy's name, but it was a girl stuffed animal. Well, that's going to be confusing for the And then we sold it at animal. a yard sale, and my wife... Had seller's remorse. Have you ever had seller's remorse? Yeah. No. Okay. <laughs> He's like, yes, uh, no. no I'm, I was just thinking, how often do I sell anything? <laughs> uh, we know who has the stuffed animals in their bed, and it's Terry. No. Terry. No. no okay, sorry. Not, it's, it's not an animal. Stuffed R2-D2. <laughs> <laughs> no. My, 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 my son does have a stuffed stormtrooper. His name is Finn. 
Oh, cute. Yeah. Oh. Is he Irish? Uh, no, he's a stormtrooper. The detractor. Um, he's yeah. just like the stormtrooper named Finn. Mike, he went nuts when he saw it. He's like, oh, it's a stormtrooper. I must have it. That's cool. See, that's cute when kids have – my kids have blankets that they still – that they had as children that oh. they still keep. Yeah, my kid has one that's like threadbare. Yeah, he yeah, yeah. He just likes to play with it. I had uh, two dogs, two stuffed animal dogs, and uh, my mom kept them for some reason. They were in some bucket somewhere, and she gave them to me a few years ago, and now my kids have them. See, now, one of them is a dog that went through about six, like, ear tube surgeries oh, when yeah. I was a kid. Oh, the dog, yeah. It was just, or five, I don't know how many, but it was just, it would sit right there on the, uh, surg- the operating table with me. Really? Yeah. Did it get its ears done too? I maybe maybe the doctors tried to help me by saying we'll, we'll do the dog, the dogs also. But yeah, my daughter has that dog. See, but remember, like yesterday we talked about nostalgia. Yeah. Here we go. You're, we're all we're going well, down again, memory lane. My mother mm-hmm. is the one that saved these things. I just you know. Yeah. Well, you're cold and angry and scared. I moved on. It was great. <laughs> but you know, it was cool to have them back, and then now my kids have them. Wow. And they're like, "This is Daddy's dog." See, you're a good man. Yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> Got to do what you can. Cool. Uh, Jeffrey, help us with some empty news. I know we've got to answer this question about Chuck E. Cheese tokens, first of all. Exactly. So it has to do – oh, the Chuck E. Cheese tokens. You want to do that one? Yeah. Okay. First. So there's a Massachusetts library. And, you know, we've all done this where we've gotten a penny back, but it's actually a Canadian coin. So we do it from time to time. But this is – This is crossing the line. Yeah. Massachusetts Library is reminding residents that Chuck E. Cheese tokens are not an acceptable form of payment for overdue book fines. I I know. (laughs) It seems like we should be able to, but we're not. Peabody Institute Library in Danvers, Massachusetts posted on Facebook this week, the library has had a surge of people attempting to pay fines and printing fees with tokens from Chuck E. Cheese this summer. Hmm. The library says the tokens are not legal tender and cannot be accepted. Library bookkeeper Sue Contos says she has ca- she had counted three Chuck E. Cheese tokens one day before realizing they weren't real money. <laughs> Those this little is such tricksters. a huge problem. The funny thing is, so is it is it a Chuck E. Cheese token? Is it the size of a quarter then? You know why they're paying yeah, it must be. You know why they're paying these Chuck E. Cheese tokens? Because what? nobody ever goes back to Chuck E. Cheese again. Well, but the thing is, a Chuck E. Cheese token is probably more – it costs more than a quarter. It's probably like 50 cents or a dollar. So Maybe. you're actually – it's not a great exchange rate. <laughs> it's better to exchange your money not at Chuck E. Cheese. But seriously, as a parent leaving Chuck E. Cheese, the first thought in your mind is, I'm never coming back here again. I, these things – these people are driving me crazy. My, I didn't know that my soul could be sucked out like this. Yeah. No, I'm with you totally on that. Yeah. OK. And now talk to us about the armed carjacking. So when you have problems driving a manual transmission, then you know – You're a millennial. <laughs> So there's an Alabama teen who's under arrest after authorities say he tried to rob a man of his car and other things but couldn't carry through with it because he didn't know how to drive the vehicle. Blasted! The Jefferson County Sheriff's Office on Wednesday announced formal charges against 17-year-old Quinderis Brown. The holdup happened on August 18th. Deputies about 4.30 p.m. Uh, that day responded to investigate a report of a robbery. Chief Deputy Randy Christian said the 23-year-old victim told authorities 
authorities. He had been doing door-to-door sales in the area and was sitting in his vehicle to eat and complete paperwork. As he did so, he said a black male suspect came up to the window and pointed a handgun at him. Uh-oh. The suspect later identified as Brown, demanded his phone, tablet, and car keys. The victim complied, and Brown tried to drive away in the car. The suspect, however, was unable to operate a car with a manual oh, transmission. Push the clutch in. So he left the tablet and the keys in the car, but I assume he took the phone. Christian said the victim was able – so then he fled on foot. Uh, Christian said the victim was able to track his mobile phone and provided deputies with the location. Deputies located the suspect at an apartment and took him into custody. Busted. Wow. You know what, though? This reminds me of one of our sponsors because this guy that was the victim was doing door-to-door sales. Yeah, right. And we've actually got a new dating service that profiled a door-to-door door salesman. Hold on. Door-to-door door salesman? Yes. Wow. Selling doors door-to-door. Oh, this will be good. Here at Niche Mates, we believe there's a match for everyone, even for those with very specific tastes. Case in point. Hi, I'm Tom, number 7009, and I'm a door-to-door door salesman. Now, I know that's not really a unique profession, but I do what I can to stand out from the competition. Uh, for instance, most door-to-door door salesmen will carry a book of door swatches. Uh, but what I do is I bring several full-size doors with me to every doorstep. I, in fact, I'm making this video on my way to my very first route of the day. Hi, I'm Tom, and I know what you're thinking. Wow, what a beautiful looking door. How much can I pay to acquire such a fine product? Whoa, slow down there, friend. First, let me educate you a little on the history of this chestnut-stained mahogany door. This particular door is of the Swietenia species, found in the Caribbean and Central and South America. Anyway, that's me in a pie nutshell. And uh, I know what you're thinking. If you go on a date with me, yes, I'll open the door for you. And I won't spend the whole night talking about the fabulous redwood, Douglas fir, maple, poplar, pine, and oak doors I have available. Niche Mates. Who says you can't have everything you want in a mate? Are you the kind of person who tries to do everything by yourself? It's often difficult to delegate tasks to others, especially if you're like a perfectionist who is worried about others not getting the job done the way you would do it. You know, whether it be delegating chores to children or delegating responsibilities to employees, many of us fear a lack of control if we just aren't in charge. Here to talk to us today about how to decide which tasks to delegate and how to get more out of your delegation is Jenny Blake. She's an author, a business consultant, and uh, also, um, by the way, is the author of the book Pivot. The only move that matters is your next one. And we're honored to have you here, Jenny. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Why is it so hard for people to delegate? There are a bunch of reasons. One is that we're sometimes people have the perfectionist curse, like no one can do it as well as I can. Yeah. Or, well, it's sometimes it's that oh, it would take longer to delegate than it would to just do this myself. If it does involve hiring outside help, sometimes it's about budget and being a little fearful of spending money or should I spend money on this type of task. 
And a lot of times it's that we're so overwhelmed that we are just caught in a pattern of feeling behind and kind of underwater and we're the bottleneck. And yet um, delegation does take some time and some trust up front to get it going. But once you do, it can save tremendous amounts of time down the road. You and, and you have a you personally have lived this. You've seen how delegation turned your business around. Yeah, when I first started out, so I left Google. I was there five and a half years working in coaching and career development. And when I started running my own business, my first book had come out in 2011. And about a year in, I realized I am the complete bottleneck in my business. If I get sick, if I need to take a break, if I'm wondering what's next in a creative sense and I don't have the answer yet, everything grinds to a halt. And that became true that when I needed some time off, um, I was no longer able to deliver the coaching and speaking services that were how I was earning a living. And I stopped making money to the point where I almost had to fold my business about two and a half years in. And that's really when I realized that it's just not scalable or sustainable for me to be the bottleneck and for me to be the only one that knows how to do everything. And so from that point forward, I started to look for small ways. And actually, the first time that I truly started delegating was hiring a U.S.-based virtual assistant through a company called Virtual at the time. And I thought this was going to break the bank. It was $200 a month for 10 hours. And in the beginning, I often struggled to fill those hours. But within a week of signing up for this service, I was like, I will cut every other expense that I have before I get rid of this one. And she helped with everything, negotiating bills, getting me set up to move apartments, doing all kinds of logistics that I didn't want to handle, things that seemed small in the moment, but that added up over time. And just by starting to outsource some of that stuff that piled up or that I didn't want to do or that would involve waiting for long hold times with customer service really freed me up to be more strategic and to be feel more rested overall in my life in general. I, I guess that's the key is because you're you're trading something for something, right? And it's usually time and um, energy for to, to get a task done. But if you can delegate the task and it can be done effectively, then you have saved time, you've saved energy, but then you can use that energy to go do more and more leveraged things. Absolutely. And, and you can do work on aspects of tasks, whether personal or professionally, that actually fit your strengths and interests, rather than having that icky feeling of just dragging your feet for example, cooking. What, one thing I love is how many apps and services are available to all of us now. So many people are trying services like Blue Apron, HelloFresh, Sunbasket. I know not all of those are available everywhere, but that's an example where someone else is choosing the recipes and even the ingredients and sending them in a box to your house. And I've been testing this out lately and it actually reduces so much friction that i don't have to be the one to think about what to make or what to buy or even go to the store and get it it arrives and then i'm happy to assemble this recipe and cook so in that way i'm delegating part of the task of meal preparation and planning um, but i'm enjoying the cooking part so that's an example of uh, personally ways that you can save time without feeling like oh i need to hire a personal chef that's going to completely wipe me out financially where do we – I mean, I, I, it's an interesting little uh, habit of delegating because I, I'm thinking about it. We never really train people to delegate. We never – I don't know where you would learn delegation skills. Uh, maybe if you're taking a formal uh, business you know, class or training, maybe a time management class. But So uh, uh, there really isn't a, a natural way to go learning delegation. 
It's so true. And maybe you learn it at your job, maybe. But even then, it can be hard to translate that to, well, what might that look like in your home life? One thing that I recommend is tracking for two weeks, just observing. As you go through your next two weeks, personally and professionally, what tasks are you avoiding? Which ones are piling up? Or which ones are draining your time or your energy? And at the end of those two weeks, you can start to look at the list and just say, in an ideal world, if time and money and even finding the right person or service were not an issue, what would I want to delegate? Because oftentimes it's a fuzzy, abstract idea. Even if you and I are talking about it now, it can be kind of abstract for people. But if they were to track in their own life for two weeks, things that could potentially be delegated, then it's much easier to now divide and conquer and say, okay, of, of that entire list, what do I want to keep doing myself? What can I drop altogether? Maybe no one needs to do it and the world doesn't end. And what can I delegate or automate? And there are so many services now that will even automate various tasks or things like online bill pay, for example. So delegation and automation, you want to at least just ask the question, what could I delegate even if I'm not ready to start tomorrow? And that alone can start shifting our mind from overwhelm into more of a creative problem-solving mode. That's great. And then do you – how do I – because I I can almost see somebody that doesn't – that's just doing this in their personal life. If they're not – if they don't have an assistant, if they don't have formal people reporting to them that they could delegate to – they they still could, as you're saying, delegate to other businesses. How do you overcome this idea that you're paying for some of this? I have I have people I know that um, try to delegate or outsource or like have these, uh, you know, have somebody come clean their house, but then they get feedback from others that oh wow, not not a good wife because mm-hmm. you you're not you're not taking care of your own home or whatever something, and you think what. How do we get over some of our thought processes that make us uh, think that we should have to do a lot of this stuff? Yeah, a couple of things. One, it's going to be different for everyone's financial situation and priorities and strengths. So for someone, they might love cleaning their house while talking on the phone with friends. You know, this is because I know I do that. When I'm talking on the phone, I'm often tidying or organizing. I like something to do with my hands. That said, I love that you brought up this example of hiring a cleaner because for me, I might, I might tidy, but I know that when I hire the cleaner and she leaves after three hours, things sparkle in a way that I had no idea they could right. sparkle. So her strength, and it doesn't replace me keeping an orderly home the rest of the time, but it's a an addition that really makes me feel like I can exhale after she leaves. And so it might be about thinking for each each family or individual, what is your budget and what are some small experiments you can try and just see how you feel afterward. So, for example, if you could hire a cleaner for $75 once a month, would it be worth it to you? And what would that freeing up those three hours allow you to do? For some people who are consultants or part-time employed, you could actually calculate what is your time worth? What is your hourly rate? Or maybe uh, three hours not spent cleaning the home is three hours you can spend with your kids. I know my brother just had a daughter and he said for the first time, he's asking himself, oh, I could either do this tiny task for work or I could go help develop my daughter's brain. You know, he says he has this new calculation for tasks that are unimportant. And and then the other thing I would say is, um, so small experiments with delegation are a great way to start setting a budget and then 
Um, getting creative, you would be surprised. It does not cost as much as you might think. And there may be, for example, my friend here in New York, the service isn't available everywhere yet, but it's called Alfred. And you get assigned a real person who comes to your house once a week and will do things like drop off dry cleaning, bring you groceries, <laughs> take shoes in for repair, stuff that might actually take you hours if you were to do that. Is and his so name Alfred? Question. Does he have to be Alfred? That's the service. <laughs> I know, I know. That's a great service, <laughs> though. Yeah, and there's more and more like it between the meal prep and the cleaning and even my dry cleaner or my laundry service here in New York, they will pick up the laundry from my apartment for free and drop it off for free. So there's no added cost to that. But I didn't know for the first five years of living here that they even did that. So part of it is just asking around what's possible to make your life easier. Mm, interesting stuff. Let's uh, let's continue the journey. Uh, we'll have more with Jenny Blake on how to delegate up next, doing what we can on the show to give you the tools to, to live the, a healthier, happier life. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to BYU Radio. to decide which tasks to delegate. Uh, Great uh, information, great question. Jenny Blake joins us. Jenny is an author and a business consultant. She's the author of the book Pivot. The only move that matters is your next one. You can go to her website, pivotmethod.com, to learn more about that. And Jenny, again, thank you for your time and being with us today. Sure. This is one of my favorite topics of conversation because it, it can free us up to do truly our best work and spend time with the people and things we really care about. So I'm just really thrilled to be here on the show. And Thank you. I hope we can encourage listeners to delegate one thing this week that they might not have otherwise. Yeah, just one thing. And especially if you then, if it buys you time to then go be your best self and you actually go do that. I mean, a lot of times yeah. I might delegate it and then I'm going to like, oh, good, I've got Netflix now. And then I can go watch <laughs> Netflix. But it, um, if I could, if I could actually then go do something of a higher level of, of productivity um, that's actually something that's, that, is, that I'm passionate about, that reinvigorates me, we probably would need fewer breaks in life. It's true. And that brings up two points, which is one, there is a little more investment up front to just get things organized, figure out how to delegate, who to delegate to. So expect that. Build it in. Don't get discouraged. And second, like you said, sometimes, as soon as we free up time, we actually realize, man, I just need a break. And so let there be a lull where maybe you haven't filled it yet. You have a little extra space. You don't exactly know what to do with yourself. And that's okay, too, because that space is what's going to create room for the truly strategic or meaningful next projects that come in. But there may be a gap where you're just happy to have out outsource the set of tasks first, even if you don't know yet what's going to come in to fill that space. Mm, that's such, such, I mean, you, you do, you need space and you need time, right? And because the space yeah. and you need, and I guess you need energy. And time is the one thing that we cannot get back. We can't get more of it. We all have the same number of hours in the day. And really the question is, how are you spending your time and how does that match up with how you would like to be? And and I know it. You know, my book is Pivot. It's about career change. But what I found is that for us to have truly meaningful work and family life, that the more we can free ourselves of all these shackle shoulds 
of what we should be doing, what we need to be doing. Even now, we have so much information flying at us from all corners of the Internet, from our text messages to our email inboxes to articles we want to read, that we are maxed out. So it is time to start cleaning up, clearing things up, creating space. And delegation is, other than dropping things all together, delegation is really the next step to do that. Yeah. Talk about your, um, you you have what you call the six T's. I guess these are like, these are filters, I guess, you run your tasks through to see if we should delegate it or not. Uh, maybe fill us in. How, how do we dis- determine what we delegate, what we don't? Great question. I believe that everything, well, let's say 80% of everything that can be delegated should be. And we'll talk about the six T's of what's that 80% and then what's the 20% that you should keep. Maybe if something is super urgent, super high priority, or you just happen to love doing it, even if you could delegate it. So how do you know what's the 80% that you should take off of your plate? The first T is T for tiny, tasks that are so small that they seem inconsequential, but they really add up. This could even be things like paying bills, registering for events, RSVP, booking flight and hotel. The next T is tedious, tasks that are relatively simple, but probably not the best use of your time. For example, inputting 100 items into a spreadsheet or updating statistics that you could easily delegate. There's even a service called Wonder, where I recently used them this week, where I put in, I paid $50 to get a report on all kinds of statistics that I was going to need for an upcoming presentation. They did the hours of research. I didn't have time to do them, and it allowed me to do the rest of my work. That was the one I could have done, but it was tedious. Uh, The next T is time-consuming, tasks that... Although they may be important and even a little complex, take a lot of time. So even that research one I just mentioned, uh, I was in customer service, absolute drudgery when I left my iPad on a flight. And let me tell you, my, my virtual assistant spent hours and hours on the phone trying to track down the right people, trying to find the iPad. We were not successful in the end, but I'm thankful that I wasn't the one having to sit on the phone that whole time. We divided and conquered on that front. The next T is teachable tasks that, uh, although it might even seem like they're too complicated to be delegated, you actually could break it down into a process or a system and teach someone. And this is a really important one. So much of delegation is about setting up systems so that each time you repeat a task, you actually get better at automating it. And that if you can take a little effort up front and write down the steps in a process, you can delegate. And I love how you said even at the beginning, maybe it's chores to your kids. Yeah. So you're actually thinking, oh, well, they're a little older now. And, hey, if I just explain how this process works, they might be able to help out. That's so good. Uh, the next T, yeah. we have two more, is terrible at tasks that it seems like you should do these and you should be good at them. And maybe you should like them or not. But no matter what, you're just terrible at it. And you take far longer than people who are skilled in this area. So, for example, um, for me, designing PowerPoint slides when I give speaking presentations, I'm just not good at it, and it takes me forever. So I delegate brand strategy, or um, for some people, it's updating their website. They just hate it. I happen to love 
working on code on my website, <laughs> but some people don't. So figuring out what are the things you're just, maybe you're terrible at is assembling Ikea furniture. Like you're so bad at it that the pieces end up crooked and broken and ruined within a month of you having set them up. That's another one of my terrible ads. And so in that case, you can actually pay. There are professionals who are just there to help assemble Ikea furniture. <laughs> that might be one that you do. And then the last T is time sensitive. Tasks that, that they're important, they're time sensitive, but they compete with other priorities. The one thing I love about having a virtual assistant, and like I said, I pay $200 a month. And that for me means I might have uh, sacrificed one or two extra dinners out in a given month or some shopping. I don't personally do a lot of shopping. I would much rather have a VA. And what's been amazing is, okay, oh, my gosh, I'm at the airport, and I see that my next flight just got canceled. Quick, can you help me look for other flights, or do I need to go to a nearby airport? And I once did this while I was on the runway at a connection in Texas and had my VA while I was up in the air finding alternative flights by the time that I landed and then fixing the car pickup that we had scheduled from the airport once I did land. So that's an example of how having even knowing who you could reach out to in a pinch is really super helpful. And some of this stuff, it might seem overwhelming or intimidating. Some of delegation, you just have to kind of get into the swing of it. And you might think, oh, well, I don't have nearly enough stuff to delegate. But let me tell you, <laughs> once you start, you will not want to stop. And you really will figure out how to fill that time. And it does, like you're saying, it it can double or triple your your business. It can double or triple your your happiness, your value of life, your quality of life. Absolutely. When I was leaving Google, I had the fear, oh, my gosh, I'm leaving this highly coveted six-figure job. What if I end up in a van down by the river trying yeah. to run my own business? But as I was leaving, I would say to myself, but what if I earn twice as much in half the time? And I always held that candle at the same time as the fears, just so I had something to work toward. And I, a couple years into my business, once I truly started delegating, and I don't have anybody who works for me full-time. Everything is part-time and contract work. Um, I really have met that vision of making two or three times as much in half, if not a fourth of the time that I was spending when I was at Google. And so it hasn't happened overnight, but the only reason that, that ha it has happened is because of delegation and getting help and not trying to do everything myself. What would you say, Jenny, as we wrap it up? Um, I always ask for the one thing that is the big thing, the one thing that makes the biggest difference um, in delegating. Is there one thing we can do today, right now, as we are thinking about this to, to begin to um, make better decisions with our delegation? Get out a piece of paper and start observing what you could delegate. And just have that paper by your desk or use the notes app on your phone and just start observing. Don't worry about how you're going to delegate whom or how much it will cost. Just keep a list. And then later you can review and rank that list of what's most important. And if I got to add in a second tiny thing you could do is try one experiment. Just this week, as we said earlier, try delegating one thing. And see how it goes. And you don't have to keep delegating it forever, but give yourself the permission to stretch a little bit and at least try. That's great. Great stuff. Jenny Blake is her name. Thanks, Jenny, for being with us. Thank you for your time. Again, everybody, go to her website, pivotmethod.com, where you can find out more about Jenny and her work as, as well as her book, um, Pivot Method or uh, Pivot. It's the only move that matters is your next one. 
Interesting insight. Isn't this wonderful? You learn. You start to learn. And if you just delegated one task or actually just identified, hey, I don't even need to do that. Maybe just engaging our brain would be the beginning of change. Awesome stuff. We'll continue the journey up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Mindbenders are coming up right here on BYU Radio. You know, if Jeffrey Liam Simpson loves anything on earth, it is uh, chips and salsa. He mentions it about every other day on the show. And so uh, how better <laughs> how better to uh, – or who better to go to on our next story about uh, Mexico breaking – having a world record – a record thir- – no, what is it? Three-ton guacamole bowl, I guess. Are you a guac guy? I am. I, I like the guac. I don't love it. So I wouldn't – I don't necessarily ever order it on anything. And I don't order a side of it. Well, that's because you don't like to pay the $4 extra or whatever yeah. it is. I don't like the guac tax. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, there, the recipe for a record-breaking guacamole, 25,000 avocados and oh, 1,000 wow. people to mash them. Plus a little <laughs> love, maybe, and yeah. some honesty. And a few onions, maybe some... <laughs> Diced tomatoes. Yes, and some donkey tears. Uh, That is what avocado growers in Mexico's Jalisco state mobilized. Is it Jalisco? Jalisco. Jalisco. So they broke the world record for the biggest guacamole, a whopping three tons of delicious dip made from green gold. (laughs) I would never call guacamole green gold or avocados green gold. No, no. The mass mashup was part entertainment and part politicking as growers and Mexico make the point that they and the guacamole-loving Americans have benefited from the North American free trade agreement that is now under threat from U.S. President Donald Trump. Ooh. I never thought guacamole would get political like this. No, I didn't either. I mean, we, hey, Americans love guac. Yeah. Come on. You know, the only way I could see it getting uh, political is people complaining at a restaurant of the cost or the taste of it. They say, oh, it's because of Obamacare. Remember when everybody was (laughs) blaming everything on Obamacare? Yeah, I used to love guac until Obamacare. (laughs) What? How does that work? More than 600 student chefs and 400 people from the rural town, one of the most difficult words to say, by the way, of Concepcion de Buenos Aires prepared the traditional dish for thousands of people. The state's governor was on hand to receive recognition from a representative of the Guinness Book of World Records. Why do I... I feel like this is a, an I Love Lucy series or segment where they're they're in a big bowl in Mexico and they're stepping all over a bunch of avocados. Did they mix this up with like... Was that an episode of I Love Lucy? No, but like they oh. did, they did, they made grapes, they made wine from grapes, and they're dancing in a big, you know, a big vat of. That's true. So I'm. How did they mix this? Did I don't they, know. Just a great big whisk. They all put their hands together, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, 
and went to work. Just had at it. Just started cutting up avocados. So uh, I think we've got time for one more here. Okay. Terry really wanted me to get to this one. And it's so de- – it's oh, it's so sad. You really feel for this guy. Why? A marriage proposal in a Missouri park took a wrong turn when the man dropped to one knee and immediately dropped the $4,000 engagement ring off a bridge. Oh, <sighs> Stacy Dabney posted a video to Facebook showing what was supposed to be Seth Dixon's romantic proposal to girlfriend Ruth Marie Salas on a wooden bridge at Loose Park in Kansas City. The video shows Dixon drop to one knee and lose his grip on the engagement oh, ring, brother. causing it to fall through the wooden boards oh. and into the water below. Blasted. Dabney's post shows photos from the aftermath. When the couple's friends gathered at the bridge to plunge into the water and search for the ring, after a long, hard search, all the divers came up empty-handed. The couple left with no ring in hand, but a heart full of love and memories to last a lifetime. Boy. That... Hope this doesn't come up later. Remember that time you dropped that my ring in the, yeah. in the river? You know the rest of their marriage It's going to be like, don't drop that. Don't drop that. He's going to be Mr. Butterfingers. I See, wonder if he... So they never recovered it. And did she say yes? Well, it sounds like so. Yeah. We don't know, do we? Well, it says they had no ring, but a heart full of love and memories to last a lifetime. Oh, so they are going to last a lifetime. See, this seems like if you were a smart jeweler, you would see this story, step in and say, we're going to donate the ring to this guy, to this couple. This would be a great Great advertisement moment. Zales, if you're out there. Daniels. Daniels. Uh, Jane Seymour, where are you when we need you? Get the man a ring. And maybe we don't need a $4,000 ring to show our love. Maybe hmm. what we need is just hard work and service. Some dedication. Although a $4,000 ring certainly does help. Yeah. Plus you can always uh, you can always sell it if things don't work out. Especially if you're a man and you're not a 10, like we were talking <laughs> exactly. about earlier. Exactly. By the way, the video's up on our Twitter feed. Just go to at Dr. Matt Show. You can check it out there. We will continue the journey next hour. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Uh, Top and bottom of the morning to you. It depends on when you're getting up in this great country. Uh, This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here along with Jeffrey Simpson and Terry South. The gang is all here we are locked and loaded, and we got a great hour of, uh, of ideas and information for you to, to live longer, love stronger, lead healthier lives. Today we'll be talking parenting, and, uh, you know, parenting's never easy. But when you're a parent, too, you also have to not just parent your kid. You have to parent their friends. A lot of times you parent your spouse. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's just a lot of parenting needs. And it never goes. And then you go to work, and then you got to parent your team. It just seems what, like What are you saying? Do. I just think— I just wish everyone would grow up a little bit. Hmm. And I mean that in the best way possible. Of course I do. You're a monster. This is the show where we give you the latest, greatest. By the way, today, uh, interesting little story we will get to this hour. Nun, a nun with a chainsaw. No. Yes. 
You have not lived until you've seen the video of a nun and a chainsaw. How has this not already been adapted into a film? Yeah, you'd think it would, huh? Would it be a scary film or would it be a comedy? It would be a, a scary, funny movie. What do you mean? Can that can a, that happen? A, a horror or a homedy? Ooh, a homedy. Don't I know think if... homedy is better. Yeah, I didn't. I don't know that I've ever heard of the word homedy. We just coined it. It's nice. I like it a lot. I like it a lot. We'll be getting to that topic, of course. Plus, BYU Sports Nation will be with us. We like to check in with them to find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. They're going to give us, I'm sure, some BYU-Wisconsin update. Here's your question for them today. Yeah. Can BYU score more than what they're averaging so far this season? What are they averaging? 11 points. Mm. They're playing a top 10 team. Yeah. Can they score more than 11 points? That sounded negative. Well, 11 points is not that high. Okay. Because it seems like uh, they would first have to find out who the quarterback's going to be. Well, yeah, sure. Okay. Can we bring back Steve Young? He's available. I saw him. He was just on TV the other night, Monday Night Football. (laughs) Steve, we really need you back. And from a report we read earlier, he's just using it to prop up his other business of selling Business financial yeah. properties. Smart mm. guy. Yeah. Smart, smart. So guy. he does the pregame show, runs up into the uh, one of the luxury boxes, and entertains clients for the entire game, and then comes back down and does the postgame show. Yeah, yeah. So he's using his access as a way to uh, to sell people on whatever financial investments he's working with. He's mm-hmm. using people, basically. That's horrible. And then he had to kind of walk back some comments that he had made. <laughs> But he's about Monday Night Football. It's a very complicated life when you when you make the majority of your money from one job, right? And then you well, go do this other job. His you can't ever turn his, off. His money is made because he's Steve Young. Yeah. He's an NFL MVP. Right. He's a Hall of Famer, and he's using that status to attract people to the company he's working for. So wait, he doesn't like Monday Night Football? No, he does. He just said it's kind of just a means to an end. And so people were like, it's not the most important thing. I wait every single week for Monday night, just like the song says. Yeah, but you need a life. I think he then went on to blame it on Obamacare. Yeah. I I thought it was Hillary's fault. It depends. Mm. Apparently the president's uh, tweeting about Hillary this morning again. Well, I didn't didn't understand this because I didn't watch the interview. Which one? Apparently CNN made an – Oh, yeah. Did you like, apparently Hillary Clinton in one of her interviews talked about breathing through alternate nostrils? What? Yeah. No, I did Does not she have, see this. Shiv gills or something? <laughs> no, I'm trying to find it. This uh, will just go back to the whole like she's a lizard uh, conspiracy theory that was spreading around during the election too. The Washington Examiner is reporting that mm. Hillary Clinton demonstrates alternate nostril breathing during a CNN interview. Isn't that called gasping? Yeah. For air? Because you're not getting enough oxygen? <laughs> you must have a deviated septum. Wow. By th- this, her, her I think interviews, this is Donald Trump, wasn't it? Her interviews have been wide-ranging. Yeah. From how Bernie Sanders didn't help her she's, out. She's got to, a little bit of a, a lip smack there, too. She's, she's out promoting her new campaign memoir. And it, um, I guess CNN's Anderson Cooper um, 
asked, it seems like you've been doing a lot of yoga. Uh, what kind of comment is that? And, and she, Clinton said, yes, I have. And alternate nostril breathing. Was, she offered that up. Was Hillary's reply. I wonder if this is her attempt at humor. Probably. And then Cooper then asked, well, why don't you show me uh, <laughs> that coping mechanism, what, what that entails? And, and she said, I would highly recommend it. You're supposed to shut your eyes. I don't want to shut my eyes on national television because, I mean, you never know what Cooper would do. Um, but he may, maybe like you do something like steal, know, yeah. steal something out of her purse. I don't know what you do. But you, you do hold your nostril and breathe through one. Oh, okay. And then – I thought she you, was able just to physically shut one off. Yeah. I was like, is this like, like wow. a – This is like a bar trick. Yeah. Hey, watch me. Wiggle my eyes. <laughs> um, and then you hold it and then you exhale to, to the other and you just keep going back and forth nostril to nostril. So you're just plugging wow. your nose. And we have audio of it. Um, let's just see how it feels now that we know what she's doing. But, by the way, this is... <laughs> she must be having guacamole, too. Um. This, this, this is President Trump, by the way. You know what? In addition... That's, it is? That's Trump? Yeah, the audio is Trump. He it's, kept sniffing during yeah. a debate. But it's almost like they must have the same... They must have the same yoga. idea. Maybe the same, the same yoga. How do you, how do you differentiate somebody's sniffing? That would be tough to do. Not really. You it's, know what? It's like a fingerprint. In addition to the yoga that you mentioned that she's taking up, I, I've heard that she's also taking up yodeling. Oh, wow. That is, this, comes, this comes with the book. This is one CD. of the things you can only do in retirement. Right. Lots of habits, right? That's where you you pick up your yeah. your your new uh, your new hobby, your hobbies, yeah. Some something just to kind of enlighten yourself, open yourself yeah. to new ideas. She's yodeling, and she, and few people know this. As your voice gets lower as you age, your singing voice actually goes up. Hmm. I did not know that. She yeah. does this as she walks through the woods behind her house. Yeah. Uh, so she's doing the facts. She's doing yoga and yodeling. Yoga loading. Along with her frontiering through the mm-hmm. frontiering. Is that was called when you go hiking just She's into a the mountains. Frontiers woman. All right. Frontier person. See, she never would have been able to accomplish all of this if if she had become president. So Let's maybe in a way it's a good thing. No, this is a good thing. I mean it's good for it's good. <laughs> it's really good. So uh we'll continue to cover that uh, those in depth stories for you giving you the latest and the greatest. But let's get to the real headlines now with Terry South. Terry, what's going on? I have three Russia-related stories. Russia's still in the news? Russia's in the news. U.S. government announced Wednesday that it is phasing out federal agencies' use of security software made by the Russian brand Kaspersky. Kaspersky? Kaspersky. That's the helicopter company, right? No. they. Uh, these guys make the computer software that's loaded into oh. all these computers. It's just free you know, garbage yeah. spamware that's yeah. on your computer. The directive was given months after the General Services Administration took Kaspersky off the list of approved vendors because of possible vulnerabilities in Kaspersky's that could give the Kremlin backdoor access to the systems and the, that the company protects. So the guy that runs Kaspersky used to work for KGB, I believe is how it works. Wasn't that Kerry Kaspersky? No. And so he used to be involved with the Russian spy agencies, and so now he's running this software that you put on your computer, and it's like, well, are you giving stuff to the Russians? What are you doing? And and it's just sort of weird. I don't know if there's any any cases where he did this. They say it's – they deny any credible evidence has been presented that they're involved, but whatever. 
They're trying to take it out of the Defense Department just to be safe. Uh, uh, Russia story two. The Kremlin has hit back up the State Department after it closed three Russian consular offices in the U.S. in August. And Moscow's particular method of retaliation will make any city dweller gasp. (laughs) Russia has decided to limit the parking spaces of American diplomats working in the country, who up until this point had enjoyed special parking privileges, the Moscow Times writes. Parking spaces outside the U.S. consulate (laughs) in St. Petersburg had been painted over with a pedestrian and crossing and special parking signs have been removed outside the u.s consulate in western russia near the ural mountains wow so they're taking the parking spots away from u.s diplomats what jerks they're amping now up this we're fight. gonna have to park in the parking garage <laughs> <laughs> and finally we're uh susan rice not finally yeah i still have another story after this, susan rice she was uh the uh national security advisor for president obama yeah she yeah she was accused of unmasking Right. Right. When it came to security and surveillance, which people then are, allowed people to, to find out a lot of stuff about Trump. She would get a report and it would say person A or something yeah. like that. She could uh, apply and find out who person A was. What is this yeah. person's identity? Because sometimes they gave her more context as to what the security issue was. Sounds like Scooby-Doo. Yes. Unmasking this, somebody from Scooby-Doo. And this, huh. has, this has to do with you cannot surveil U.S. citizens. Right, right, right. right. So when you unmask a U.S. citizen, there's some legalities that go on, and there's a process that goes through. And many people tried to say that she was doing this willy nilly and just every, yeah. you know, and she wasn't. She was going through the processes. Everyone goes through, and she was doing it correctly, is what they found. But former National Security Advisor Susan Rice acknowledged to the House Intelligence Committee that she unmasked the evidence of top Trump officials in order to find out why the United Arab Emirates Crown Prince was in the United States. Hmm. The Washington Post previously reported that the UAE was involved in setting up back channels for Trump's transition officials to communicate with Russia. The UAE, United Arab Emirates, was setting up the, the meeting we talked about uh, about oh, several months ago on a Mediterranean island oh. between representatives from Trump's campaign and the Russian government. Oh, So the UAE was being this kind of middleman to try to make this all work. Interesting. Now, everyone denies this even happened. No, but it di- in fact, it didn't happen. It's fake news. So uh, what she was saying was the crown prince uh, of the United Arab Emirates traveled to New York to meet with the transition officials, including Jared Kushner, Steve Bannon, and Michael Flynn. But the UAE government reportedly did not notify the Obama administration as per protocol. You have a visiting government official. You notify the government that you're visiting that country. Hey, we're in town. The the big dogs here from the UAE. So Rice told the committee, which was investigating Russian interference in the election, that she asked to see who the UAE was meeting with. So that's why they unmasked him. They unmasked him just because it's like no one's following any protocols here. If a U.S. diplomat goes to another country, a representative from the government, Secretary of State doesn't show up in a country unannounced. Right. But the the representative from the UAE, a crown prince, showed up here and didn't tell anybody. Well, so, he just wanted maybe so he was going na- to Vegas. The national security advisor was suspicious, like, yeah. what's going on? Yeah. So she unmasks and find out, oh, they're meeting with people from the Trump campaign. Or so she says. And then it led to other pieces of the story. See, By the way, care. that's the worst thing you can do to a superhero is take off their mask. Totally. It's the worst. Like taking off Superman's mask. Mm-hmm. Are you saying Trump's a superhero? 
I no, I never said that. That's and, those are your words. Final story. We talked earlier about the London Fatberg, the big one, yes. the 143 ton the mass of oil, fat, of fat diapers, baby wipes, all the stuff that's in the sewer that's clogging up the sewer there. Utility company uh, Tim's Water is trying to dislodge the smelly blob, which is 820 feet long, <laughs> uh, <sighs> by breaking it up with high powered hoses. They say the process could take weeks. The London Muse- the Museum of London says it's trying to acquire a chunk. Of the fatberg to put uh, it on display. I don't think you call it a chunk. They that's, want to, a, that's offensive. They want a cross section. They want to display it because it's it's uh, as I said, it, it raises questions about how we live today and also inspire our visitors to consider solutions to the problems of gr- the uh, growing metropolises. So we a have problems. This is piece a, of London, right? They haven't decided how it'll be displayed, but they want a piece of it. You know what? The marketer in me says, if you would just cut off a little snippet of the berg and then put it in a little locket. You could sell London lockets forever. Really? That, and we could slowly chip away at the Fatberg. Did you know that there is a candy bar called Chunky? Oh, yeah. It's just called Chunky. Yeah. You had it? Yeah. Really? That's how I got so chunky. Hmm. That's how I got this figure. I'd rather be called Chunky than Smelly Blob. Or how about Fatberg? Yeah, that's worse, too. Yeah. I mean... It's just totally rude. Chunky is in, is kind of endearing in a way. Is it? Well, more so than the other two. How about Chunky Monkey? You Chunky Monkey. Like what if what if your wife gave you the nickname Chunky Monkey? Well, hopefully she wouldn't cuz I've been working really hard. You have. That you might look, crush me. And you look you actually I mean I didn't want to bring it up but you look you look fantastic. Seriously. I love all the oils that you put on your body now. You just sparkle. Essential oils. All the oils. They all work. There's an essential oil that you can rub on your body that makes you lose about 10 pounds a week. Wow. That's actually what I'm doing. I'm still eating the nachos and the pizza and everything I want, but uh, yeah. Hold on. You, there's an oil you rub on your body and you lose weight? Yeah. It's just called Disappear. Disappear by doTERRA. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like... This really exotic oil. Where do they get the oil from? Oh, just, you know, from the Rocky Mountains. Hmm. It's crazy. Uh, now, you started your second diet. I do want to get an update on this because you, you, you made – you did a diet where you lost eight and a half pounds. And in, in all of that, you ended up winning. You ended up getting back about $45. Yeah, so, so I, I netted 16 bucks. You scored. And because you knew you were going to kill that one, you decided to start another one. This one is tougher. Yeah. It's, it's uh, eight and a half, another eight and a half pounds? I've got about uh, whew, nine days left. Okay. To lose 16 like pounds. Th- three or four pounds. <gasps> Do you really? Yeah. So I'm a little nervous. This one was different because it wasn't just changing your diet. It was you also started exercising with it to bring off even more weight. Right. Because all the easy weight was kind of off of you. So I've been focusing on exercising this week. I went to the movies the other day. Yeah. This is the first time. This is a big deal because the I've gone the past couple of weeks and I've had popcorn every time. Yesterday, I had sunflower seeds really? instead of popcorn. Wow. Did that did that help? Why why do you sound so surprised? Well, you're not even at a We're ball. Talking, you're not even at a ball game. So, I had a little cup, a little spit cup. 
I was the only person in the theater. Because you know somebody came after you and they're like, what's with all the seeds on the floor? <laughs> Who sat here? So instead of, you know, 1,500 calories from a bucket of popcorn, it's probably more than that, I had maybe 200 calories from some mm. sunflower seeds. That's great. Yeah. You, you, um, you, well, again, so you've got about five pounds. Is there anything we can do? You got nine days. No, it's, it's more like three and a half, four pounds. You know what I might do? Hmm. You know that special oil that you use called Disappear that makes you rub on your body? Yeah, so you don't I'm out. I ran out. Oh, so. I was going to say, maybe yeah. you ought to quit putting it on your body and you ought to just like ingest drink it. it. Yeah. 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 I'm pretty sure that oil would keep everything out of you for a while. Hmm. I'm just saying. You look great, though. Thank I'd, you. I'd kill to look like you. <sighs> yeah. Okay. Diet talk is over. <laughs> Thank heavens. Because <laughs> I'm so... Not, jealous? I'm so much? jealous. I am. I'm not in shape. But I exercise every day. And I don't even... I honestly don't even eat much. I just don't eat... And I don't eat the right things. But you yourself said that exercising doesn't really help if you're not eating right. That's right. That's right. Don't bring it up. Up next, Heather Johnson will be joining us. Hadge, we call her. And she's going to walk us through some parenting tips. We always need to learn as much as we can to be the, the parents that uh, our kids need us to be. That's straight ahead right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. Heather Johnson's joining us, and uh, Heather uh, is, we call her Hadge, but she really is, she, she walks us through how to be healthy, effective parents, how to make our, our family time a, a valuable time and a useful time. Heather is uh, a, a professor here at Brigham Young University and is on campus. She's been doing that for more than 12 years now and uh, also has her own beautiful family. She has a wonderful uh, website, um, Fit called familyvolley.com, and you can pick up her book called Family Fun Fridays, soon to be releasing Family Fun Saturdays through Thursdays. That'll be all straight ahead. Today, she's talking about how to parent kids that are different from you. So if your kids, I mean, it happens. Like some of your children, you're like... Who is your father? It's yeah, it's because you don't seem to be like me. <laughs> and and they're not our mini me's, right? We I think yeah. when we start having kids, we're like, oh, they'll be just like us, and they'll like the same things right. and think the same way. Right. That is not true. Sometimes it's true, but it's not always and, true. And they're not even like it's. We just think that okay, there's maybe ten genes. Yeah, and they'll they... be pretty divided, <laughs> and so they'll always seem to be like you, but. Right. It's not like that at all. It's not like that. And you can probably think about your own kids. There's some that are just like you, just like your spouse. And then there's little differences that are alike or or different in every child. Yeah, right. right. I can see some similarities to myself in all of our kids. But I can also in some of our kids see how they – they really are a lot more like my husband. (laughs) But what what if – I mean which is actually good for you. But like what if they're more – like your in-laws. Well, <laughs> that would still be like that. Or like the weird uncle. <laughs> it's true. I have like the weirdness. Like, yeah, yeah. Like that, that one. They're like the one guy. Yeah. We're we're being so critical right now. <laughs> but I look at it. But it's real. All of a sudden you think you really have like to be like to be a doctor is a lot of work. Sure. And none of my children, uh, maybe one of my children wants to be a doctor. But all of my brother-in-laws are all brilliant doctors. Okay. 
And I've looked at my kids and I wanted – I would have loved them to have a lot of those skills. To have done those things. They didn't pick up any right. of those genes. <laughs> you were hoping it would skip? Not from, one gene. From like uncles yeah. and jump right mm-hmm. in, you know, through yeah. wives and through spouses. Totally. And, so we have to look at these differences not as bad things. It's, right. You know, we see them and we look at them across the kitchen table and we go, oh, my gosh, I have no idea how your brain is processing what it's doing. Like you're, this is ridiculous because my brain doesn't think that way. And we see it as a negative thing. Differences aren't negative. No, they're not. not at all. In fact, there's a lot of areas to learn and to grow from them. But we've got to see that the relationship with our children means far more than the fact that we're different. Mm-hmm. And that is an amazing thing. And isn't it? great. It safeguards us, right? Because here they're different. If we had to become the same, we would all fail. Oh, yeah. But if we protect a relationship, we can all succeed. That's what's powerful, too. And then that also means in your family, in your family unit, you have hundreds of abilities and strengths mm-hmm. that you can draw on and use. It's exactly instead right. Instead of three. Instead of <laughs> instead of the three that we agree on perfectly. Right, exactly. Because we will never agree perfectly. And so the relationship has to come first. Relationship over differences is, is always going to be for the win all the time. That's what we want to try to do. And this plays in a lot of ways, right? Because this is also the relationship with our spouse. We're very quick to find differences, especially the ones we feel are negative, and then blame them on the other person right. so we can exonerate ourselves. Yeah, totally. Right? You know, I look at our nine-year-old daughter who is a little bit more reactive than is in my nature. Uh, emotion drives her a little bit more than it does me. Yeah. My husband is more that way. He's he, Emotion drives his thoughts and thinking a little bit quicker than mm-hmm. it does for me. And so I have to be careful to not look at him and say, hey, she's she's yours. Like, she's just whatever like this you. is, yeah. that's you. This is your yeah. fault. You yeah. fit. And, and that – so it's not just the relationship with our children that we're putting over the differences, but it's the relationship with our spouse where there really is no room to negatively point out faults mm-hmm. in order to pass the buck, to exonerate ourselves, or even just to find a place to explain it. Uh, my husband knows that they have that in common. He doesn't need me all day long to say, this right. is silly. Fix it. This is yeah. your fault. Change it, right? Right, right? Why did you do this yeah. to her? That's well, and down the road too, I've noticed that – he also might be a great resource if he can learn to manage his skills and abilities effectively. He can then be the teacher that that might have answers to some of these things. And that is what is so amazing if we'll just hold on to yeah. it. Because one, he's going to have the answers because he gets it. He's been there. And two, he can then teach me those things that I can do in order to better relate to someone that it that on the front end looks unrelatable right, so exactly. that I can go around and do that. So we want to make sure relationship always over differences. That's always the first thing Huge. we want to focus yeah. on. Now, once we go from there, it's really important to start evaluating the size difference. It's so funny as parents, we think the fact that, for example, our daughter wants a neon yellow shirt and I want a gray shirt is like life altering. <laughs> We are different. She likes different things on her body. She likes different clothes than I do. Yeah. It's okay. It's not that big of a deal. It's right. not that big of a difference. And so we have to be careful to make sure that we, we minimize the differences are not that big. It, it's not a big deal. Yeah. It's not a big deal. It's a shirt. It's right. a shirt. My Our relationship or my relationship with her is much more important than the color of shirt you choose. So we tend to make these differences much bigger than they need to be. Yeah. And it, what is that? Is it is it just our – is it judging? Is, what, I mean we don't need to yeah. – make them bigger. We don't have to do that. And sometimes it's because we're comparing what's different now to what was maybe the same then. Uh, and so to hear this out, you know, as as I look at my opinions now, they are a function of a lot of experience. Well, 
a lot of experience more than her, Mm -hmm. than our 12-year-old daughter, a lot of situations and opinions that I now have as a mom and as a wife and as a teacher and as a coach and that type of thing. I'm comparing how I see the world now to how she sees the world at 12. If I would compare how I saw the world at 12 to how she sees it, we probably have a lot more in common. Yeah, it's so true. And so we're making very unfair comparisons. We've got to compare, you know, apples to apples. We've got to look at it the same right. and say, wait a second. When I was 12, I probably walked into a store with my mom and I saw a shirt and said, mom, I love that one. And she probably in her head, because my mom is amazingly patient yeah. and never says anything negative. She probably maybe thought that is so ugly. Why would you want to wear that? <laughs> the same way I walk in with our daughter and think, what? Why what in the, the world yeah. would you want to choose that? That That's so far from what so I want to buy you right now. Right. And so we've got to make sure the comparison is fair. When I was 12, I probably thought a lot like her. I probably saw things very similar. Sure. Now I don't. Why? Well, because I've got like 25 more years on her to, yeah. to see things right. differently, to look back at a picture and say, you know, the neon yellow, I probably should have gone with the black. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would have been better. Yeah, it's more thinning. It's, it's, <laughs> it's exactly. <laughs> so, it's a little more flattering yeah. now, now that I yeah. look back on it. So we want to be really fair in our comparisons. And oftentimes, like you asked, why do we do it? Well, we do it because we're not putting ourselves in their position. Mm. We don't have the empathy to recognize what is actually happening and make fair comparisons. We oftentimes do do it because we're actually looking at things a little bit selfish, where I'm worried about how I might look, and so I'm trying to control her. Right. And this is so detrimental, whether it's with parenting, whether it's in our relationships. But personification, this idea where I try to control someone around me that I'm that I'm bound to so that they make me appear a certain way. Yeah. That's no good, right? You so, can't do it. Yeah. So I want her to wear the right shirt so that when I'm walking next to her, I don't think everyone's looking at her going, geez, this mom, why the heck would she buy her that thing? <laughs> and, and that's really sad. That's a very selfish approach totally. to parenting. Right. So we got to be fair in our comparisons. We got to do that. We've got to be really careful. There, there really are, and there's, there's such subtle things. Um, let's take a break, Heather, come back and continue this journey in trying to, to parent the kids that are different from us, the ones that, that just see life differently, that act differently than us. We, you know, they're ours. We've got to, and we have that stewardship. We'll continue more with Heather Johnson from FamilyVolley.com. This is the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. We're back with Heather Johnson from FamilyVolley.com. Heather is, again, a professor here at Brigham Young University, where she teaches students the principles behind successful families and the importance of families spending time together. And uh, also, she um, she uh, has, a, has a blog, FamilyVolley.com, is a website you can go find more out about Heather. She writes there regularly. Married for it, it's is it thirteen years? You've been married longer than that. No, it's, it's, it's like sixteen. We yeah. just celebrated sixteen years. And they always say sixteen years happily married, but probably more like fifteen and a half. No, happily. Ha- <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, you don't have to answer. No, no, no I know. More like sixteen. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. No, no. It's, it's all been, been wonderful. Good, that's the key. It is. And and even the day <clears throat> that's hard, it doesn't mean the year was hard. That's exactly right. And if I keep looking for good things, I keep finding good that's things. That's the amazing thing. You you look for what you – you find what you look for. And that's the same uh, kind of philosophy when it comes to parenting. You are talking to us today about how to parent kids 
that are different than us, the ones that maybe aren't as that aren't so like us that it's just easy. It is. It's true. And and some will be easier because they're like us. Yeah. Some won't though. And some but will maybe be... that's that's the way it should be. And maybe those are the ones that you're actually going to learn the very most yes. from. Yes. Yes. And they're also the ones that will test us and mm-hmm. they will push us. And so they're the ones that create a different kind of growth in us as parents. Yes. And so we're going to start by making sure the relationship matters more than the difference. We're going to make sure that we make fair comparisons between our opinions now and what was probably our opinion at their age because that's an unfortunate thing we do all the time. Uh, We assume that they're going to see things an adult way when they're not adults. So we have to be careful there. Another thing that's very important is to make sure that we put understanding over agreeing And this is something that matters in every relationship we ever have with anyone, including the mailman, because some days he's late with what we want. Like we have to understand over agree. So, excuse me, when it comes to our children, we need to focus and work to understand them. So if we go back to the example of our daughter and I, which is one I hear from parents all the time, she wants to wear this and I don't want her to wear that. This is like this common, I don't know, 12-year-old daughter syndrome. Well, Jeff and I have the same problem. Yeah, you guys, it's just back and forth, right? Trying to to figure it out between the two. I was going to wear that today. (laughs) And so when we look at this example again, I don't think I can ever be on board with choosing neon yellow, right? Screaming neon yellow over a much more traditional navy gray you know, mustard, cranberry, those, I'm not going to switch the fact that I agree those colors are better than neon yellow. I'm not. You just, yeah, you have a preference. I do. I have a preference. I can understand though what it's like to put a color of clothing on my body and feel great in that color. Mm -hmm. That I can understand. I can understand what it's like to be at school or in a social setting and have everyone around you subscribing to a color or a fashion or a trend and want to be a part of that a little bit. Right. Now that I can understand. You get it. So when I look at our daughter, it isn't about the color. It has no, nothing to do with whether it's yellow or navy. What it has to do with understanding. And I can understand where she's coming from, which makes it then very easy to say, you know what? Buy that yellow shirt, mm-hmm. rock it, own it, and let's take extra pictures of you in yeah. it so we can always remember how great you felt. That's in that. cool. You can understand. You can also appreciate. She's probably less likely to get hit by a car. Right. <laughs> it's it's true. You know what I mean. She doesn't even need to wear no, reflective vests when all. she rides to school. Anymore. She's safe as can be. <laughs> and it is. It's it's so true. We get so concerned about figuring out how we're going to agree on it instead right. of worrying about understanding it. And this has to do with a lot of a lot of things, but especially these differences. Because the next thing that really comes to mind is recognizing these differences with our children usually lie in opinions and processes and not values. Hmm. And there's a big difference there. Now, my daughter and I, we do not disagree when it comes to the value system behind what she wears. Uh, We're both on the same page as far as what is appropriate for a 12-year-old to wear. We're both on the same page with how long her shorts should be or Mm -hmm. what kind of sleeves might need to be on her clothing. We're okay there. You're good there. We're just not okay in the opinion of what color those shorts should be. That is just a difference of that's, opinion. That's preference. That is preference. That, and I guess that's the, the – the, some of us think we have to control everything. Right. And that's when we forget that they're actually real people with a brain that thinks right. too. Right. If we were controlled that way – and my husband, we got married and he was like, by the way, you can't have that color. You can only have this color. Or not this today but that today. There is no way we would oh, stay with that. No, brain. it wouldn't work. We'd be so frustrated all the time. And that's what we do to our kids. Yeah. And it's the same with processes. You know, our daughter and I, again – 
there's this funny place in the morning. I think she should get up, shower, dry her hair, and then eat last. Yeah. She thinks she should get up, eat, and then worry about drying her hair and finishing that process. Now, there is no manual official statement from anyone that says you have to dry your hair before you can eat breakfast. Nine out of ten no, beauticians. <laughs> right? Or or anyone. Politicians. Right. The president says there isn't that. That hmm. is a different in process. Yeah. Now, she gets to school on time, if not early, manages her own space, takes care of her own hair and breakfast every day just fine. And just because it's different than me doesn't mean that we have to find a way to make it the same. It just means that I need to recognize, wait a second, how great. She's not saying I shouldn't shower at all. Yeah. She's just saying, could I just have a bowl of cereal before I do it? Even if she ended up going to school with wet hair, it's, she would learn. It's still okay. And if she's okay with that yeah. or not, right. and that's the fun thing, right? They go and then come back and realize – and maybe they don't, but maybe they do that. Oh, well, maybe if I swapped it, this would work better. Mm-hmm. Oh, maybe mom's been doing this for 25 years and, and knows. Or maybe it's, you know what? The fact that I'm not starving is way more important than if my hair's dry. Yeah. And I'm totally cool That's with great. it. That's great. And yeah. again, go with wet hair and a yellow shirt. And by all means. Sure, you'll be beat up. Own the day. <laughs> right? Own yeah. the day. Maybe That's the, that's the cool thing. Let them be them. It's then, okay. Th- then they actually fit in their world. They do. And they feel good there. And again. Again, this is another really good example where oftentimes it's our own insecurities that that create the controlling atmosphere. It's yeah. me thinking, you're going to look like this and what about that? Instead of, own it. We're okay here. Yeah. You will grow up from 12 and realize it's nice if your hair's done before you hit a public social situation. Right, right. You'll come to that without me harping on mm-hmm. and creating a power struggle for the four years it takes to get there. Then it seems like, too, you could actually, if you had to, you could then exert more pressure on something that actually matters right? rather than the preferential issue. And that's where we got to go back to, like you're saying, values over the opinions and yeah. over the processes. Cool. So we want to separate them. So we recognize what it is we're really differing on. Because mm-hmm. most of the time, and sometimes there will be a value-based difference. We should mention that. That does happen. We know. We felt that's, it. Yeah, that's it. And that's where it's really tricky. And that gets hard. The fact is there's not like a blanket, let's just, this fixes a value-based difference. What does bridge it, though, is going back to where we started today, which is making sure that the relationship and understanding trump any difference, even a value-based difference, Mm. so that the love keeps the relation and the respect and the trust keeps the relationship strong, even if the values end up being different than we hope they would be. Right, right. Because, again, if if our purpose in parenting is to get our children to agree and be just like us – we're, we got a long haul in oh, front totally. of us. And sometimes it'll be the color of a shirt, but sometimes it will be a value. It, like we don't do drugs. Right, right. Or, and that seems like the, the – but you have to have the chest, the war chest already prepared, the trust, the relationship, the understanding right. to know how to approach the big issue. It's exactly right. And if, again, that is a choice that one of our children make and we just start fighting the do we do drugs and drink or don't we mm-hmm. – then we are not fighting the, do you know I love you and can you love me in return? Do you know I respect you and do you trust me in return? Those are the things that must be in place. And so even to get to that point, we've got to do these things we're talking about. We also have to start managing our own expectations. You know, we have children and then we have these expectations for them that their life should look the way we envision it to look. 
And again, we forget they are themselves. They mm-hmm. have a brain and they have desires and they have, you know, opinions and they have likes and dislikes. They're going to be different and it's okay. And so we want to manage our own expectations. Uh, one of the best analogies, and I heard it years and years ago, was a woman mentioned that we are very quick as parents to see our kids as bonsai trees. Hmm. And we we have these little bonsai trees and every day we prune them and we trim them and we shape them so that they look exactly like we want them to look. Just And just we sit them on our desk little, yeah. and they're just this perfect little thing. And every day we are constantly on it. Yeah. I mean, a bonsai tree only looks the way it does because like we see in like movies and, yeah. you know, memes, you're on it, on it, you're on it, on it, on it. Constantly working it. Kids are not bonsai trees. We have to see them more as a wildflower where they need to grow and reach and stretch. And our job is to make sure that there's sunlight and to make sure that the soil is so very nourished and to make sure they have all that they need to just reach and stretch Hmm. and become who they want to be. That's a very different mindset as parents. And again, you can see where if we manage our own expectations and see them that way and provide the foundation, the nourishment for what they need, they will grow into Mm. something far more beautiful and colorful than if we are constantly picking and pruning and poking and yeah, trimming, and they'll be able to handle the world. <clears throat> like the bonsai tree, you can't just put it out. You can't you know, in it, the world. It it can't handle that. It can't handle that. And the only way it does live is if we keep at it all yeah. the time, incubate it. Right. And I I don't want six kids in our basement that still need incubating <laughs> yeah. when they're four. I right. I want them to have all those same amazing experiences that I've been able to have and that I know are are out there for them to have. So a couple of kind of fun suggestions to start doing this tangibly as we wrap things up. Uh, One of my favorite things to do with couples and families is to encourage parents to start writing their own owner's manual when their kids are alike or different, but Hmm. especially when their kids are different. And it's this really amazing exercise. The sooner you start, kind of the, the more you've got there, and it's much more in the process. But we all have kids and look at each other and go, man, how come this kid didn't come with an owner's manual? Yeah. Start writing your own. Take note each day of the things that work and that don't. Take note of the processes that they fall into and that you fall into. Take note of your weaknesses and strengths and theirs also. And you will start to see the patterns of parenting and living that you and your child is different than you go through. And the cool thing is not only do you have this amazing reference and also uh, a moment each day to just be still in your parenting process. Yeah. But how cool would it be to give that owner's manual to your child once they have kids? Right. And to pass it along. Not to their husband. Not to their spouse. Or their spouse. But to them. That's and beautiful. And to just have them see and have it be a reference. And the thing is, it wouldn't matter if they had a child like them or not like them. Mm-hmm. They still have this resource where they look and they go, oh, here mom was patient. Even if you're like me, I've, I've got to be patient. So it will apply regardless yeah. of who the child is that right. they then have. Right. But it is this amazingly beautiful process that we can start going through right now to, to kind of recognize what's going on with mm-hmm. our kids and what's what's happening. The other really cool suggestion that I love to throw out before we end is the need that we have to find a common denominator hmm. and how important that is. Not a thing I love, not a thing our son loves, but something totally unique that we've come to, we to share learn together. and share together. That's great. And so this is going to bridge any differences. It's yeah. going to create a space where, one, the differences can be talked about because it's safe, because we trust there. And now the differences aren't so big because, look, 
we actually love doing that together. Right. So now we're rewriting what our, cool. what our history looks like. And instead of our kids saying, I'm nothing like my mom, she doesn't even get me. It's, oh my gosh, my mom and I totally love doing this together. Yeah. She does get me. And that will start to trump the areas where we can't quite figure out the understanding to lead to the agreeing quite yet. Mm. And that will trump that. That's beautiful. So really, you know, really easy everyday ways to just – to see them, they are just the most wonderful thing we could ever put our energy and effort into if we can get over ourselves. Yeah, that's it. Get over <laughs> yourself and, and, and find, find the unique them. Find them and see them. Yep. Powerful stuff. Heather Johnson's her name. Go check out her website, familyvolley.com. And uh, you can also uh, look her up on Twitter at, uh, at Pen and Paper Girl. She's, she's everywhere. She's everywhere. We will continue the journey. Uh, got a lot of uh, some headlines to give you in a few minutes. We won't be talking to our BYU sports guys. They just happen to have gotten stuck in an interview. Wow. Blasted. Anyway, straight ahead. Tons of fun. Welcome back, friends. As we wrap it up, I wanted to give you some of the funniest tweets. Uh, on Huffington Post, they have a parents section, and they, they put together a funny tweet uh, from tweets from parents. And uh, some of them, here's a funny one from Jennifer S. White, at Yenny White. Most of parenting is unsuccessfully attempting to sit down. That's so true. <laughs> You're constantly trying to just sit down. Uh, here's another one, dragging feedies. The problem with a household with a stay-at-home parent is that both parents think Saturday is their day off, and both parents are wrong. That is also correct. Good job. Uh, Copy Mama says, um, at Copy Mama says, whenever I see a kid do something the first time that they're asked to do it, I just assume they've been hypnotized. Or they want something in return. <laughs> so, so true. Um, some of these I have to censor because they're just not appropriate. Um, uh, Ma, at Mom Truth Bomb, as a parent, you slowly learn to stop asking questions like, why is there a plastic spoon behind the bed? Don't ask. Don't ask, Mom. If you have to ask, you're in trouble. Now, we promised you, too, that we'd talk about the chainsaw-wielding nun who's clearing debris from the Irma uh, aftermath in Florida. She's the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show. Across the state of Florida and up into Georgia and South Carolina, images of first responders have become a welcome sight amid the aftermath of Hurricane Irma. But among the unusual uniforms, those police of police and firefighters and paramedics, a nun's habit stands out. And... Uh, you know, a nun, by the way, that's that's might be strange to see in the middle of the aftermath, but a nun wielding a chainsaw. Well, uh, it's happening. There was a need. I had the means. So I wanted to help out, said Sister Margaret Ann, a 30 year old education veteran from Archbishop Coleman F. Carroll High School in West Kendall, Florida. Sister Margaret Ann knew of the chainsaw in her school's closet. So she thought uh, nothing of it, ripping it down and then going out and, and taking the chainsaw to take down trees that were blocking the roads to to maybe tear apart a you know a building that needed to, to to be accessed we teach our students that you do what you can to help other people don't think of yourself she said that's all i wanted to do and she did it so sister margaret ann you are the hero of the day on the matt townsend show remember folks all of us can be heroes that's why we do the show to just lift each other's lives byu sports nation is up next